Yo, yo, yo. Hello, What's hello. up, everybody? We are back. Welcome, everybody, to Actually Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we're going to be covering episode 13 of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series. We just covered uh, two episodes dedicated to higher states of consciousness, which were amazing. And we highly recommend this episode to anybody that finds any of this intriguing. It's from an immense 50 lecture series by Professor John Verveke, a professor out of uh, University of Toronto. Cogsci, uh, psychology, and Buddhist studies, and much more in his background. So, last episode, I'm going to help us catch up here for just a moment. I'm going to get us set up. Oh uh, boy! Sure oh, I have live. I have the notes right here. Let's let's just uh, radio. Not so many notes. The pervasive sense of oneness that is indicative oh. of higher states of consciousness. So we're talking about these, what people often term them, term them enlightenment experiences. Yeah, I'm creating a descriptive and prescriptive explanation right of what's going on and by descriptive you know describing it and then why and then prescriptive is why to do it why yes why why participate in these altered states why yes to legitimate why should mm-hmm. science become interested yeah. we now have reputable proof in many peer-reviewed studies now of these higher states of consciousness we're measuring the brain waves of mm-hmm. buddhist practitioners in transcendent states we're seeing the brain under the influence of various psychedelic substances, plant medicines, and we are also noticing psychological differences in people after they have these experiences that are positive, yep. deeply, deeply positive for them, yep. and life-changing. So we discussed the Solomon effect, which was, you know, if somebody's having a problem, say, like interpersonally with somebody else, and they explain it to you. They are explaining it from their first person egoic perspective. And what you have them do is you have them tr- then explain the situation from how a third person would see it. And I think this is important to keep in mind when we're discussing, say, like higher states of consciousness, because it is very much becoming the third person's perspective with you and the in rela- your relationship to the universe. So yes, that, th- yes. That third extra thing. An Alice-centric perspective mm-hmm. rather than an egocentric yes, perspective. Yes, so instead yes. of feeling a sense of divisive, you know, divided, being divided from the environment, thinking of ourselves as separate from the world and other people, we feel an intrinsic sense of oneness and interconnection that is experiential. It's beyond intellectualization. Like we can mm-hmm. know that we're trading atoms at all times and that mm-hmm. this whole universe really is this one thing with you know very many different constituents to it but it's still this one thing we can know all of this intellectually and yet we can also know this experientially down to our bones a sense of unmistakable oneness that is super familiar it's like home it's like mm-hmm. a remembering mm-hmm. a sati as yeah verveki describes it utilizing they the become a member Japanese again term. Mm-hmm. Yes, for awakening, for remembering in a very specific uh-huh. kind of way. Well, and it's you know, sense of belonging to the world again, and you feel like in relation as one with it. Yeah. Yes, and we were warned of the dangers of the autodidactic approach, the self-taught approach too, because you know there's there are dangers to doing this and just doing it willy-nilly and not having guidance, and that's why so much importance is being put on you know understanding this and rebuilding 
new practices to do to achieve these higher states in a safe way that's going to maximize your grip on reality and not just have you fixated on some rabbit hole somewhere uh, i think last week i referenced like you yeah know, we like need our the, we need our guides yeah and our shamans yeah. back yeah and we that's need to somehow try and uh recollect that generation's old knowledge mm-hmm. that we, we used to have it was handed down for thousands hundreds of or even thousands of generations knowledge of use of specific plant medicines that we found in our environments from hunter gatherers up to modern days mm. yeah some and, tribes are still using them and we find that it's always a very sacramental uh spiritual mm-hmm. and we have institutions of you know information and knowledge you know we've got our universities and such but we don't have wisdom institutions anymore like outside of maybe like good churches and other things of that nature um, and so we really need to build them back. And the only way to really build them back is to get as many people engaged in this as possible. And the leaders and the teachers will naturally um, float to the top and mm. start teaching. And we'll get more effective as that happens. Uh, the you know the greater the pool of the participants, the better your teachers are going to be that come out of that pool of participants. I like the sound of that. You know. Um, it may not I like be the sound of that happening. Yeah, hey man, we we can do it. We got to take our coffee shops back. That we do, that we do. Um, ah, yes, and the and engage and engaging in wisdom fellowship. Yeah, once again. And so this change that we're having in a higher state of consciousness um, is a change of understanding in the participatory, conforming, knowing. Yes, participatory knowing. Yeah, and it's a reciprocal participatory yes. knowing going reciprocal back. Reciprocal realization that occurs between you and your the object or person the world that you're interacting with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the quote um and you put up a short earlier about this um but love is the mutually accelerating it, it, love is mutually accelerating disclosure yes i love that which is, that's a that's a great definition you know yeah not, mutually not accelerated disclosure realization mm-hmm. and that also goes both that's, ways that's that reciprocal dance mm-hmm. occurring where it's a feedback loop that's mm. happening. And then we discuss the functionality of the self, which mm. is like a gluing agent. It glues different things together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. We learned about psychedelics and wisdom mm-hmm. tradition. Yeah. And that we have no respected experts on this, which you're speaking of. We yeah. have no more sanghas yeah. and sat songs. That p- participatory interchange alters the machinery of self, our sense of selfhood, and, trans- and uh, helps elicit transformation of character so that radical participatory knowing is what uh, dj was just talking about Mm -hmm. that beautiful profound world revealing and self-revealing in a coupled fashion that occurs so love we learned mutually accelerated disclosure realization and and you brought us just up to To, yeah the next machinery of self yeah turn to the world and i like how this was described Mm -hmm. it's the so it self glues different things together and that glue is integrating complex things together adding complexity but ordering them as well integrating them so you know it's like we shouldn't strive for complete selflessness because it is useful to aggregate things together and make sense of things now over identifying with the self of course then you're too sticky and that's the problem is a misidentification we think that we are our ideas of self and rather than we are beings yeah, you know, we think we have a self, self is a function, not necessarily like a what you are. It's a function of what you do is mm-hmm. you have a self. Mm-hmm. It's not all of you. 
you have a self. A self does not have you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And yeah. who is the you that has it? Yeah. 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 What is that? <laughs> what is that? What is well, that's that? The, you know, through the process of self-inquiry and meditation, that becomes an ongoing lifelong realization. There's no cap to that revelation and that enlightenment that is, that is potential for us. We find out who we actually are. Our most authentic, true expression of self that is not attached to its ideas of itself, that is open and malleable to change. And that is our actual eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of the theme of the podcast. And I'm going to skip through. Well, okay. So, But we learned about why decentering is useful. Mm-hmm. So all of these methodologies, mm-hmm. mindfulness, meditative practices, wisdom traditions, uh, plant medicines, fasting, dancing to exhaustion, oh, chanting, yeah. so many different methods of achieving transcendent states. Uh, they decenter us. They help us break our frame and get a new vantage point mm-hmm. on something so that we mm-hmm. can yeah. focus and calibrate ourselves to reality better yeah. Yeah. ever more. So that we're constantly doing this. And our brains naturally do this by losing their, your train of thought and mind wandering. It's yeah. actually built into the human brain to do this because it's useful for us to break our frame, introduce static and randomness, and then come back to the mm-hmm. thing again with yeah. new eyes. Yeah. And so getting new perspectives and angles mm-hmm. on it every time. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, so and we're widening our awareness. This cognitive, this. I guess, agency that we have mm-hmm. can be exapted yeah. to the yeah. world from the self perspective. So all the stuff yes. that we're doing to work on the self, we can also apply it out into the world. Yes. Um, yeah. So revealing the truth of who we are, we can do this in relation mm-hmm. with reality itself rather than thinking that we're separate from it. We realize that we are yeah. co-creative agents. And you use the term radical decentering. Radical decentering. Which is pretty radical now because there's like this, you know, term that's going around. Uh, you need to decenter yourself or you need to center these things within your perception. And it's just like, no, nope, no, nope, just let's let's dissolve, just ab- aggregate so you can re-aggregate more efficiently. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. at this point in time, we really need to do it in a very profound, radical kind of way. And not radical like, you know waving banners and lighting things on fire no. radical as in the sense of very active and yeah. very you know uh free and yes uh, disruptive and i don't mean like bad disruptive i mean disruptive like disruptive strategy disruptive yes you know like the mind wandering yes. and stuff yes that help us reframe and see yeah. things in new light just on a so the, the capacity for us to connect and be self-focused together helps can help us achieve a deep integration of ourselves in the world with its underlying patterns and all of that machinery that's bound up in creating the sense of self can be turned to the world, like DJ was saying. So that radical sense of remembering what we are is mm-hmm. that radical decentering. Yeah. Is what radically decentering ourselves allows yeah. us the opportunity to experience and remember. Yeah. Yeah. So this next part about um meaning making machines basically, neuro mm-hmm. networks. I'm I'm just gonna sum up like real quick. It's the self optimization process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is um, how we get enhanced awareness of invariance. Yeah. Yeah. So basically what you do with these little neuro, neuro networks is you introduce variation through a disruptive strategy, um, which forces it to pick up on patterns through sampling. So it samples yeah. and samples and samples, but it suffers from yeah, over variance in those patterns, changes yeah. in those patterns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and it its problem is it's too tight of a sampling. So it yes. follows yeah. too much of the movements and it can't make any reasoning out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a need for something that he's calling data compression, which is basically like an average line between all the dots. It's a self-optimization process. It picks up on it picks up yeah. picks up on the patterns of everything that we're sampling. So if you have um, 
you know, a chart here. We got dots, 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 yeah. dots, dots, and you're trying to find the average between. Instead of like mapping and trying to fit exactly to it, because that's not what happens in reality. You got to find a way to generalize. Yeah, and, and that's that's mm-hmm. what our brains are doing. And mm-hmm. that self optimization process needs to be optimized further yes. and further so that it's more accurate. So, yeah, so that's it, you know, it's it's it can be faulty. It can also cause us to fall mm-hmm. victim to bullshit. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, we'll, sure. we tend relying, to generalize for convenience. Yeah, relying yeah. too much on the compression method or yeah, mechanisms. Compression algorithms that we have built in. But so what a compression allows is the finding of the Secret. real invariance. So like mm-hmm. so when, you, when you have that fit. line, you can kind of see your plus or minus that, you know, so say you have a line at a 45 degree angle, that's a compression line. And then you have all the information, the stuff that's by that line, you can reliably say is you know real or makes sense and then if mm-hmm. you see an outlier way up top or way below you know to ignore that you know that's, it's that's what we do it we, much, we ignore yeah. that unless it's, you're it's doing this to... and then you see oh those aren't actually outliers those are actually now repeating mm-hmm. oh and here are the outliers so then you hit them again and you add more distortion and yes. more compression, more yeah. distortion. And then the yes. thing the, the what could seem like an outlier keeps sticking around through and through and through. And now that 45 degree angle line adjusts itself. Yeah. So you just described you know? the disruptive strategies yeah. of how mm-hmm. we have this powerful pattern detection built into us. And this is this connects us to how belonging to a, to a tradition can introduce us to disruptive strategies that help us further calibrate yeah. uh, wisdom traditions, that and, is. And my last note is this is what higher states of consciousness does. Yeah. It is literally like, you know, it yeah. it tightly samples, then it creates a compressed average, then it introduces noise, and then it samples again, mm-hmm. applies mm-hmm. compression, noise samples again, so then you find the discrete invariants that just yes. looks like noise before but are sticking around yes yeah. yeah so we recognize there's something important yeah. there so that that toggling of attention that the brain yeah. does and that compression mm-hmm. algorithm that it's playing with allows us to find the balance between the hyperactive and the hypoactive yeah which the the brain you can look at the brain when it does this it goes from frontal and parietal activity so frontal and parietal yeah, lobe activities parietal lobe. when it's when it's reasoning and gathering information mm-hmm. and then it shifts down so that's the hyperactive and then it goes yeah. hypoactive and that's in your thalamus that yeah then and orders long-term long-term memories okay yeah, yeah. um yeah. so it's toggling back and forth and if you can get it to toggle real hard then it becomes very very powerful yes. that's an intense yes. shift that can so occur. and that's yeah. what the higher that's states of consciousness is increases yes. the toggling so the insight of massive reframing and self reorganization that you that we have capacity for is magnified mm-hmm. greatly in higher states. We get uh, and we've noticed measurable increases with psilocybin of metastability in the brain. So it's doing the integrating and the differentiation that it needs to do simultaneously. It's massively mm-hmm. integrating. Normally, the brain is toggling back and forth yeah. between these, mm-hmm. but it's like the whole brain lights up and it's in concert. Yeah. under in the higher states. And so we've, like we've measured con- this in the high level meditators. What, we've what measured this that, in uh, people under psilocybin, high doses of psilocybin. Metastability, I think that yeah. So or, I guess average to high. Metastability sure five grams on those studies probably. But yeah, that's the term for the the, the term for this is metastability, mm-hmm. which is the brain that is simultaneously integrating. Um, yes, integrating and differentiating. And differentiating, yep. yes. So our brain has this capacity for complexification, mm-hmm. and new abilities can come from 
the complexifying growth process, mm-hmm. emergent abilities yes. come forth through us. And we begin to, so to see the world integration in a grain of sand. You see the world in a grain of sand in heaven in a wildflower. That's the distant differentiation. Mm-hmm. Why does the state justify a change in our life? Why are we... The mission here is to legitimate the higher states furthermore for further scientific study yep. and for encapsulation yeah, so in our wh- lives. So basically, why should we listen to those crazy kooks Are that just came back spirit, down? Spirit and science. Yeah. Yes. Like, why would we listen to the guy that's like, yo, like, I got to tell you about this experience. It was, yeah, dude. Yo, bro, man, it's just like, I, you know, I, I saw the universe, but then I saw myself. <laughs> man, why listen to them? Like, yeah, what, you what, gotta be able what to qualify this. In, we got to be able to qualify yeah. this in some way. That so, is plausibility is the term that, so that plausibility and, can be generated and we can understand this and, and comprehensively the, and utilize it responsibly and the, so the term plausibility that the way he's using it he's using it to mean making good sense or stands to reason yeah and we're also helping yeah. heal the divorce between religion and science this is really important there are reasons for religions existing they might have their cultural baggage from their times they might um, do with a little bit of upgrading. And in fact, they have been yeah. over time for centuries doing just that. You yeah. notice that they change slightly over time. Um, and, and people might want to argue over which is better. But right now I see an intermarrying of the mini variant, but uh, complementing complementary uh, wisdom traditions mm-hmm. and great spiritual systems yeah. where they, they are really picking up where each other leave off. They're complementing one another really well. We're helping, they're helping us understand things from broader uh, perspectives that, mm-hmm. you know, read upon notions that all the great wisdom traditions celebrate, such as love thy neighbor and cool. un- and the uh, orientation of unconditionality that is preached and taught from Buddhism to Christianity, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yep. So plausibility the, yep. is, is not highly probable, but it makes good sense, stands yep. to reason. Yeah. So it can be taken seriously. Yeah. Rather than certainty, we're relying on a plausibility spectrum, basically. Well, we're looking no, at layers of possi- certain, levels of right? possibility. Yeah, you know, le- so, levels of plausibility. Yeah. It's, yeah, d- certainty is dangerous. You know, you yeah. get too certain about something, you're too convinced and closed off, yeah. and you're also attached to, your, to the idea so you can become ideologically possessed mm-hmm. and do things that you wouldn't normally do. Yeah, so what do we look for when we're looking to see if something is most plausible we have the converging of you know like say like multiple people have seen it or have the story about it like the trustworthiness of it so uh, independent but converging lines of evidence Mm -hmm. which reduces self-deception yes and then the next step is um the elegance and the power behind it Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. it be applied in multiple domains is it multi-apt yeah so if it's and then and it has to be highly fluent as well. It can't be like getting through a brick wall, like trying to get at it either. Yeah, it needs to be able to be like, deeply internalized. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so they can come out through elegance. Yeah. And or be so, married with that elegance, that multi app high functionality. So we need a balance between the first two because if you have the first one, which is the convergence without the power behind it. Yeah. And convergence we it, measure by what we can see, taste, hear, yeah. smell, mm-hmm. yeah, verify through other people. Yeah. yeah. So if you have, if you don't have, con- or if you have convergence without the elegance, mm-hmm. so you have something that's trivial. Oh, well, it's trivial data. We don't need to look at that. It's not compelling. Yeah, it's yeah. not not very plausible because it's not as compelling. But if you have elegance and power without 
a you know multiple sources and convergence you get something that's far-fetched like the earth is flat okay it's a powerful argument but mm -hmm. like i mean come on yeah and in the higher states of consciousness yeah. the brain is actually evaluating its state of process mm -hmm. you're you're actually conscious consciously in this process of evaluating mm -hmm. your own state of processing yeah. in, in a super powerful super reflective way um and so the the last little bit on on this uh that i got here is um if you add all of them together you have something that's highly plausible and profound yes and they, yes. that's the the profundity of the higher stage of consciousness is undeniable mm -hmm. we just mm -hmm. and we have plenty of people that have all had these experiences that can reliably point back to it and the insights gained from these experiences you can apply to all aspects of your life yeah. like that guy at the bar uh, we played we were talking kind of about that, you know, like, um, you know, the psychedelic experience and how when you come back, it, the insights you gain are applicable to everything in your life, from your job to your yes. familiar relationships yes. to how you handle minor or major stressors mm -hmm. and, you know, all that mm -hmm. stuff. Um, yeah, it's this, this the same insights you get from higher states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, we need with its own really unique, depersonalized, super meta perspective mm -hmm. and super micro at once because what's happening during the psychedelic experience is that your brain is in a supercharged state of recognizing the detail and the macro at, yeah. at once yeah looking within deeply and looking out into the world deeply yeah so basically so it gets we come to the fact that some hypotheses and experiences are not say as valid or make mm -hmm. as much sense because they're not plausible because they don't sure. pass this test Mm -hmm. of you know well multiple sources like you know um i don't know the well no i'm not well, going to try to make an the, example the insightfulness but, it's got to have the self-realizing and self-remembering it's got to have the emergence of new abilities yeah. therefore we find it profoundly plausible and we trust science because it gives us self-correcting plausibility it self-corrects itself it challenges itself we yeah. test out hypotheses to find out what's reliable to yeah. try and disprove them we test for alternative explanations, mm -hmm. giving inference to the, ultimately find the best explanation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An inference to the best explanation. It's like, this is mm -hmm. what we got. This yeah. is the best thing that we got. That's it. You yes. Know, like, mm -hmm. like, take the, you know, general red relativity. Best comp and, hypothesis wins. Let them battle yeah. it out. And even, yep. you know, how we see physics now with the, you know, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force. and Yeah, uh, what stands the all of the tests the best. Doesn't apply to what we look at in the large, the largest portions yeah. of the universe. What but we still rocket, use that it. self-landing. Yeah, but know? like we, we can still use it and it's the best for right now yeah. until we find yeah. something better. Yeah. Flawed that it may yeah, be. Yeah, this is old school, but we've oh, yeah, upgraded right. these a bunch. Yeah, hey, we can write in space now, man. Like <laughs> True, yes. <laughs> Dude, you know it was only like sixty years from the time we first flied to then when we landed on the moon. That's how fast. Like once we figured that's, out when we figure out how to do something. That's how capable how we really we are at co-creating together when oh, we dude. really put our minds together like and we have something years, a shared like, mind. That blew my mind. Yeah. I was like, "What? No!" Isn't that nuts? Yeah, well, and it's hard. It was hard. It's so hard that we haven't gone back in fifty years. And there was yeah. a naysayer like a day Over or two before years, we first took our flight that said humans won't fly for the next million years, and then like a few days later. Well, there we go. Boyos, we flew. Yeah. And 60 years later, we're on the moon. <laughs> yeah. It's like, man. Um, so plausibility is an essential op part of our opti optimization of processing, fundamental to our sense of reality. 
higher states then are indispensable as they are optimal for the functioning of allowing us to get an optimal grip on reality and ourselves in relation with it. They guide us on how to grow wisdom uh, for transformation within ourselves and the world. And the, mer- the, the scientific method that Verveke and others are applying to such a, say, mystical thing is very important because we're now m- merging our scientific, n- no fanciness, no bullshit approach that got us to the moon that gives us no wisdom. Now we're merging it with things that give us wisdom so we can actually see what works best and what doesn't and give the best explanation we can so we can further... Well, so we can land on the moon with well, wisdom, yeah, Upgrade basically. our collective sense-making capacity yeah. so that we can more responsibly and wisely utilize the great technological capacity that we have. Uh, you know, as, as Einstein warned us, you know, we have the, uh, well, how did, how did he put it? You know, we have the technology of gods and the self-responsibility of kind of like adolescence, basically. Mm, yeah, you know, we're like children with nuclear weapons. Yeah, well, uh, I, I would have to say we're no, probably just getting... We're, we're pe- fickle, easily divided. Yeah, we're getting past our... Um, I'll say we are pa- now past our teen years into our early 20 years, and it happened really quick because our teen years where we're angry at everything and we just wanted control and we wanted to be Lord of the Flies kids while well, we dropped nukes and we starved countless millions of people and we fought two great world wars that caused uncountable suffering... Um, that was the super angsty teenage dis- destructive stage of that's hope so. the human. That's what, it, but yeah. we've got the young twenties to deal with, which is going to be a wild ride, dude. <laughs> yeah. We're going to think it's fun in the moment, Ooh. but then once we get to, you Let's know, we like kill the, ourselves drunk driving the planet off yeah, the right. metaphoric cliff in space yeah. right into the sun. It's but, possible. Anything's possible, but you know, we, we are outgrowths of this planet. We are extensions of this earth and this cosmos mm-hmm. that have become self-aware. Literally friggin' stardust that has become self-aware of itself and its place in time and space, at least to some degree. Trying to figure out how we fit into this. How are we going to lead ourselves? How are we going to be the great stewards that we have the potential to be for this world of such bountiful and beautiful life? We have the power. We have, we have all the, the power. technology at hand, and yeah, we're like literally like interlinking ourselves, yep. like reintegrating ourselves with one another. All of our cultures are merging and interrelating now, and ever increasing well, he, he, high he, speeds thanks he, to the internet. He mentioned in the, I guess it was the last episode or the summation of the episode before that, but we are basically having our own new axial age. Yes, just like you know the axial age in the east of the Buddha, you know the time of Buddha or the axial age that happened in Greece, or the axial age that humans went through in the Paleolithic era. You know, like we are now at the, the axial Bronze age. age. Collapse. Following the Bronze Age collapse, yeah. there was an actual revolution. We are uh, but we're hopefully here. continuing to usher in this new Well, we're here right now. You know, it's shifting. It's, it's almost we're moving around an axis if you will, an axis of reasoning between, you know, the old and the new and trying to... Imposing views on how we're going to go forward from here. Yeah, and trying to sort and sift what from the old is most important for continuing into the new, but what needs to go. So what is 
what's we what's best that? from the new to enhance the old you know yeah because we're like, trying to throw everything out without having yeah. even built scaffolding for any new systems yet that we can all sure. at least agree on on some level and on the other end you know they're so we have to develop our collective sense making yeah. capacities and actually have the openness to figure yeah. these things out together yeah, consider each other's points of view and try to build mm-hmm. together side by side rather than opposing each other yeah. argumentatively yeah, constantly and what, playing into the divide and conquer that is yeah one one end of happening. one end of mindset wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater the other mindset doesn't even want to put the baby in the bathwater to begin with mm. you know doesn't want to change doesn't want to do it and that and this isn't a statement about like individual peoples and stuff this is a statement about mindsets you can have because you know parasitic you, processing yeah. We're going to get into it in this episode, and we're going to get deep into hey, it. Hey, how about them segues? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Do you like that? Oh, man. It just that wasn't happened. even practiced or written down or nothing. Ooh, feel that and we got state. to the end of our notes from last episode. Yeah, all we right. We're figuring out yeah. how to do this. All right, guys. We're going to jump in now. It's episode 13, Buddhism and Parasitic Processing with Professor John Verveke. Here we go. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time what we did is we finished up um, a cognitive scientific exploration of higher states of consciousness, awakening experiences, these uh, kinds of mystical experiences that bring about uh, massive uh, transformation. Uh, we saw how uh, we can give a psychologically uh, accurate description of these processes um, that explain both uh, the experiential profile that people are having and um, well, some of the features that they find therein. We were also able to talk about this at the level of machine learning and information processing and at the brain level. And what comes out of this is a picture of a, a state of consciousness that in which uh, uh, we are getting a flow state that is improving our optimal grip on the world optimizing our performance for making sense of things and enhancing our overall uh, capacity for learning and problem solving and we saw that that in fact provides a very good justification for uh, these states being the guidance for the transformation of life and that what they do is they give a brain state that is uh, highly optimized, processing things in a way that gives us a tremendous sense of a plausible uh, grip on the world, and that is making use of processing that is uh, absolutely indispensable and foundational uh, for us. It, is, it has a kind of important uh, priority in all of our processing. And what I suggested from this is that while it doesn't give us any good theories in the sense of propositional claims about the metaphysical structure of reality, these states do justify the, their claim to give us guidance. So although they are not rational in the sense of providing good argument and evidence for beliefs, they are rational in the sense of wisdom in that they optimize some of our core processing for being in contact with 
the reality in a way that is coupled optimally to our own processes of self-transcendence and the cultivation of wisdom. So the Buddha awakens, and that awakening gives him this state that is guiding him to a fundamental transformation in how he understands the world and how he understands, not just intellectually, because that's what I've been contrasting here, but in a participatory fashion, in an existential fashion himself from the world. We talked about how this is brought up, bringing about a sati, a deep remembering of the being mode so that he is seeing through the frustrating futility of modal confusion. But there is more than going on. This higher state of consciousness is not only helping him remember the being mode <clears throat> and helping him to transcend through systematic illusion and go through something deeply analogous to a developmental shift. We can also see uh, it in terms, we can see what's going on in his claim to enlightenment and its relevance to the cultivation of wisdom and the enhancement of meaning in terms of the pronouncements he made uh, from this state. Now, talking about this is very problematic uh, because the attempts by the West <clears throat> to understand some of the central uh, tenets of Buddhism have, has not had a very good history. I recommend to you um, Stephen Batchelor's book, Awakening the West, for how the West has systematically misunderstood. And Batchelor makes a current argument in a series of his books. I've got to meet Stephen um, uh, at a conference and we had dinner together. Um, I recommend all of his works very strongly and very highly uh, to you. And so from his works and in discussion with him, uh, he argues that the West is still uh, in the grip of a problematic way of trying to interpret uh, Buddhism. So let's take a quick look at that and then we will return to what the central claims of Buddhism are and I want to show you why even that way of putting it is uh, perhaps, perhaps incorrect. So Batcher um, in uh, one of his books along with others and he follows it up with uh, Buddhism without be uh, beliefs and then later on this is followed up by even a more radical after Buddhism in which he's taking the position of somebody who's post-religious very germane to many of us. Uh, he, but he does argue, and along with others, that we face an interpretation crisis when we're uh, trying to understand Buddhism. We have two approaches that people give us for how we should try and interpret Buddhism. Of course, this will not be relevant just to Buddhism, but for any position that exists in a different uh, culture or history that we're trying to understand, be it Buddhism or Stoicism or Neoplatonism, for example. So he says we are, we are confronted with two different uh, positions. One is the claim that you can only interpret Buddhism from within a tradition, and we've seen good reason why you might argue that, that this is, right, the kind of stuff we're talking about here, wisdom and self-transcendence, this is not largely a matter of altering your belief. This is about going through transformation in your perspectival and participatory knowing. It's about fundamentally altering your, the agent arena relationship, your existential modes, etc. And so if you are not engaged within the transformative practice, then of course you do not understand uh, what, uh, what Buddhism is. It has to, in that sense, be understood from within. And this is a general property of wisdom per se. 
Wisdom is something that must be understood um, from within. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is the, uh, it's myopic, right? Um, there are very many uh, Buddhist traditions, and they are uh, relative to certain times and place in particular historical contexts. And to claim that that particular uh, interpretation, a particular sect or tradition, is the uh, sole pathway to understanding or interpreting um, Buddhism is, of course, myopic. It's narrow-minded and often uh, parochial. It claims things as fundamental, which are often very contingent. So, what's the alternative? The alternative is, well, what the alternative says is, look, the problem with this is this is very subjective. I, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but the idea here is, right, this is, the problem with seeing things from the inside is that tends to be very subjective, and of course that means you're not understanding the phenomenon that it is, but you're only seeing it through your own particular bias. Um, so, the alternative, outside any tradition, and this is typified in the academic study of Buddhism, for example, like within religious studies, or something like that. And then the main argument here is, and this will often happen, it's not always the case, but if you meet people in religious studies and you'll say, are you studying Buddhism? And they'll say, yes, yes, I'm studying Buddhism. And then, and then you'll ask them, well, what practices do you engage in? And they'll say, oh, no, no, I don't engage in any practices. That would be a mistake. If I got too involved, too close to this material, I would lose my objectivity. I would lose my ability to critically reflect on it critically compare it to other traditions, other approaches. So the idea here is what we will have, right, is an objective account. Now, although uh, Stephen doesn't mention this in the, uh, his book, Bachelor, um, this, uh, Stephen Bachelor doesn't mention it in his book, this is very uh, reminiscent of the problem that Socrates faced. Because what we have here is transformative relevance and here we have some attempt to get at the truth. And like the Socratic project, I would put it to you, and this is what I think Bachelor is saying, is that Buddhism is about both of these. It's about trying to find uh, transformatively relevant truths. But that means we have to transcend both <clears throat> of these ways of interpreting Buddhism. So he points out that we have to get beyond both of these in some fashion. How do we do this? Well, he points out that we need to do this in a way that is going to be relevant to issues of meaning in our life. So this interpretation crisis where we have these two competing and diametrically opposed ways of trying to interpret and import Buddhism is actually interacting with the meaning crisis in society. Because we're not doing this just in some empty cultural vacuum. We are precisely interested, as I've been suggesting throughout this series of lectures, we're, that we're doing this precisely because we're deeply involved with 
the project of trying to recover how we can cultivate wisdom and enhance meaning in our lives in a cultural historical context that is not supportive and is in fact often deleterious to those existentially necessary endeavors. Okay, so what do we do? We have to break out of all of this in some fashion. And what he does is he tries to see where these are both fixated. And what he argues is that this will become myopic because it will get fixated on the particular propositions of a tradition. It will get fixated on beliefs. And this is, in fact, what you study over here objectively. You study, of course, the texts and the beliefs that have been propositionally rendered by a particular uh, tradition. It's this belief fixation that needs to be broken through. This is why he entitles the book that came after, Alone with Others, uh, Buddhism Without Beliefs. Because he tries to argue that part of what is preventing us from really getting both sides of Buddhism is that both of these are fixed, locked, like being locked inside the box in the nine-dot problem, on trying to understand Buddhism as a set of beliefs. We have gotten so used to this way of thinking, and we'll see later why it is a post-Christian way of thinking, that these traditions for culti- these axial legacy traditions for cultivating wisdom and self-transcendence are to be understood as creeds, as st- systems of beliefs that we now even will equate, right? the word belief with these practices, we'll talk about it as a belief system, or we'll even use the word belief as a synonym for faith, etc. So we have gotten so oriented towards this reduction of all of what we've been talking about here, all of this transformation process to the possession and the assertion of beliefs, and again we'll see historically why that's the case, that we can't break out of this. Interestingly, although I won't be able to do it in this video, we're going to see that breaking out of, right, trying to understand meaning in terms of belief systems is also going to be needed to address the meaning crisis. I have been uh, pointing you towards that repeatedly. Belief systems, namely ideologies, are attempts to create meaning, but they fail for the deep reason, and you've already seen a lot of argument and evidence for this, is that a lot of your meaning-making machinery is not occurring at the level of your propositional knowledge, your uh, your beliefs and, and, and your assertions of which beliefs you adhere to. So he proposes instead what we need to do is we need to look at Buddhism ultimately existentially. Now, you remember, existentially has to do with these modes. He also invokes in, alone with others, the distinction between the being mode and the having mode, and he proposes that Buddhism is remembering the being mode, and I've already talked about that in a a previous video. And so he says, look, traditionally what the Buddha said, and now we're returning to what the Buddha said in order to try and get more of what his enlightenment was about, Traditionally, what the Buddha said is presented as the Four Noble Truths. And these are four statements or propositions 
that are usually presented to our ears as claims to be believed. All right, we're back. We'll do a quick summation of what we just watched there because it's, uh, it's already getting pretty complex. So Buddha, Sati, the remembering the being mode. When Buddha overcame his modal confusion when he remembered the being mode, when he recognized the two approaches to self-transcendence were both failing. There is a middle way, essentially. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Vervaki breaks that down really well here. Mm -hmm. And so there's this man, Batchelor, um, Stephen Batchelor. Stephen Batchelor, and his argument was the West is in like uh, in the grips of failure to interpret Buddhism because mm -hmm. we're trying to interpret it either. This applies to Buddhism in any yes, kind of tradition: yes, yes, Stoicism, yes, Christianity, yeah, yeah. whatever you but name it. It's either as you know, you have to have what practice are you doing, and there's only you know one right practice, and, or you know like. It becomes a. I have, I have cool kids club written here. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes very, a, a matter of belief. Yeah. You can only interpret it. You can only interpret like realization from within a from within a tradition. Yeah. So it's you can't. It's the idea that you can't understand transcendence without being in yeah. this cool kids club, which like is too said. subjective. It's, it's too too subjective. Yeah. It's too fundamentalist. So then, and much so much of it is based on belief. So yeah, and so yeah, the, very subjective. The alternative to that. Mm -hmm. is the overly objective and overly say la objective, la yeah. lazy in a sense it's like oh no you don't do any practices and you don't you know like mm -hmm. no because if i was to do that that wouldn't be buddhism because buddhism is everything and if i was to just do this only one type of thing then i'd just only be in one type of thing and how yeah. can i gain the truth you know you have to have this objective look which is way too out there which is very similar to the it's the claim that it's the only truth once again it's this yeah. this uh, overly uh, excessively objective yeah. way of trying to look at it yeah. without going deep into mm -hmm. the mystics the mystical side mm -hmm. of any tradition without getting deep into that 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 yeah. really deep metaphysics of any tradition and it, um, you're you're kind of going to be missing the, the golden thread that runs through mm -hmm. all of them you got to go deep and much like the the Even scale if you are choosing a couple or a few of them to do it through mm -hmm. but yeah yeah and much like the scaling um and that's what Buddha realized. This is like, there's got to be a middle path here. I've tried the the excess of denial, and I've tried the excess of having. Mm -hmm. uh, what? And, well, this also goes. This can go back to the scaling of attention as mm -hmm. well. Like, so we need both of these, obviously. And I would say, like, the first position would be the scaling down down into the the single thing. Okay, well, there's a single practice that you do, and the, you know you do this practice, and then the other one is scaling up and says there are no practices; they're all all practices, and they both have the same pitfalls, because if you're only practicing one thing, then then you choke, mm -hmm. and you're not able mm -hmm. to grow just scaling from it. down, like just meditating yeah. without the <clears throat> contemplative side and of that practice. Yeah, and if you're going up too much, then you get fixated on yeah. you know nonsense. Yeah. Uh, or vagary, you know, Krishna mm -hmm. spoke about that. Anything mm -hmm. that goes into too being too vague, it's mm -hmm. like not nah, like that's a good point. Don't, don't, yeah, that's yeah. not good either. But so we need the both and we need that non dual state. But you know, because ultimately, what I've gotten written down here is Buddhism is not a set of beliefs, Buddhism is the remembering of the being mode, yes, and the remembering yes. of the being mode 
allows us to keep ourselves from being yeah. too myo- myopic, fixed on yeah. our beliefs and li- and li- literalism. Um, and it keeps us from being too closed off to going too deep as well and trying to get mm-hmm. like this just kind of like cursory objective view of all of them and mm-hmm. see where they kind of like disagree on some high points. Yeah. And, and so how do we fa- find the balance between both yeah. and I guess the postulate or the, yeah, because we are deeply involved in this time of trying to figure out how we find meaning in our lives once again as mm-hmm. we re-explore our wisdom traditions. Yeah, so we, we find the fixations in each one of them mm-hmm. in order to make sure not to fall into the fixations so we can use both. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, the, you know, using old ways and new ways together in harmony, mm-hmm. uh, yes. using both, both scalings of attention mm-hmm. at the same time. What have we learned up to now yeah. and what have we neglected from our deep past and what is that golden thread that mm-hmm. runs through through mm-hmm. everything of all of these different wisdom traditions that we find ourselves you know, reaching for when we seek meaning and so and uh, transformation in our lives bachelor's proposition is useful also for the meaning crisis you know because there's not just the one end of like you have to be in a mystery school and all this and or these practices to gain meaning and then there's not just you know you can't just be in the other end where it's like you know postmodern there is no meaning all, no all, meaning. all all meanings are fine every every question is real and what you know so like that's the opposite end so with the meaning crisis we can use attention is, scaling yeah, the, we can use what our we're relevance learning from realization together Buddhism, to find out what's yeah. the most relevant things yeah. in our agent arena relationships yeah. that we can optimize to, and we figured that out by making yeah, figures good and, and foregrounding and backgrounding and doing mm-hmm. all the other stuff we learned in the other episodes. It's all yes. coming together now. Yes. Yeah, isn't it cool? <laughs> yeah, you can see how he's stacking a lot of meaning into short sentences or short paragraphs now because he's taught us these terms now. Vivek is a great teacher. Mm-hmm. Much love to you, brother. And thank you guys for tuning in and joining us on this learning journey here with John Verbeke and Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And that's uh, that's all my notes on that one, unless you have anything else that you want. No, I think I covered covered everything I had too. All right, so I've got a time stamp. I've got a time stamp for fourteen twenty six. Ready? Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll give us a couple uh, ten seconds or so rewind here, guys. And we'll it's, get it's funny. Into it's it. funny watching the auto transcript because like you'll see words that are bleeped out. Now what? It, sound, it sounds like something you can't say. Yeah, right. <laughs> or it's his enlightenment like, uh, was about traditionally uh, what funny. the buddha said is presented Here as the go, four guys. noble truths and these are four statements or propositions that are usually presented to our ears as claims to be believed and that what makes you a buddhist is if you believe them the problem with this of course is that it is taking place at this very level that bachelor argues we need to get beyond It's not, of course, that people don't believe things within Buddhism. It's that what we've been talking about here, these processes of transformation, are taking place at the level of perspectival knowing, at the level of transforming of states of consciousness, and at the participatory level, transforming the fundamental machinery of the self, of the agent-arena relationship and the modes of existence. So we need to understand these four noble truths as things that could help afford the kind of transformations we've been talking about. The point about these is not to believe them. The point about them is to get them to help you reenact the Buddha's enlightenment. If you're not doing that, if you cannot enact enlightenment, 
then you are not getting the Four Noble Truths. He proposes, therefore, that we should not call them the Four Noble Truths, we should call them the Four Ennobling Truths. I then proposed to him in person that we shouldn't even call them truths anymore, because truth, truth is a property of propositions. Actually, I said what you should call them is the four ennobling provocations. You're trying to provoke people into change. So let me try and go through the four noble truths, but restating them in as four ennobling, enabling, that means affording self-transcendence, provocations. By doing that, I think we can get back to, if that's the right verb, what the Buddha was conveying about what's going on in enlightenment. What kind of transformation is being brought about by the awakening experience? And what is it alleviating? Okay, so let's go through these one by one. Okay, so I'll present the, the, the standard way of representing the truth, and then the reformulation in order to deal with Bachelor's, I think, astute criticism and in order to interconnect with all the argumentation we have been developing throughout this video series. So the first one is typically um, stated as all is suffering or all of life is suffering. Now, um, <clears throat> that's, first of all, if that were the, the statement to be believed, it's false. Um, because suffering is a comparative term, and comparative terms can't be extended to everything. That would be like saying everything is tall. It doesn't make any sense. Things are only tall relative to other things uh, being, um, being shorter. So, first of all, it, it doesn't really mean all is. It's something more like all is threatened by. Well, what's the all? Does it mean everything in existence? Should we interpret it metaphysically? Well, I mentioned last time that we should be careful about giving metaphysical interpretations to what people bring out of these awakening experiences. And the Buddha himself was famously reticent to give any metaphysical interpretations to his statements. So let's try and follow that. In order to get at that, let's note what this word means. Okay? Because again, we've tended to allow a word to go through a process of trivialization and reduction, and we've lost part of the meaning. Let me give you, first of all, an analogy. Okay, so the original meaning of this word is insane. But it has come to be synonymous with angry. I'm mad at Agnes. doesn't mean I'm insane, right? It means that I'm angry at Agnes. How did that happen? Well, one of the ideas is anger is a state that can render you, if it becomes extreme, extreme anger can render you temporarily insane and therefore temporarily mad. Anger is a cause, a pertinent cause of madness. Okay, so suffering, people usually hear pain, 
distress when they hear the word suffering. That person is suffering. But that's not actually what the word means. To suffer means to undergo. It means to lose agency. So you can actually suffer joy. You can have so much joy that you sort of have lost control of yourself. You can have so much pleasure. It is not oxymoronic to say, I'm suffering pleasure. It means I'm having so much pleasure that I've sort of lost control of the, situa of the situation. Right? Now, pain is a very powerful way of losing agency. Why? First of all, it's highly disruptive. And secondly, pain is associated usually with damage, and damage is a state in which we're often losing agency. So, right? Don't hear just pain. The Buddha is not saying everything's painful. That's ridiculous, because if everything was painful, nothing would be painful. Even all of your experiences can be painful. Doesn't mean anything particular. Because many of your experiences can't be painful in and of themselves. Right? Because, again, this isn't an absolute kind of claim. Instead, pay attention to this connection rather than this one. Do you remember, last video gave a parable of this suffering. It's the monkey that grabs the pitch and then tries to free itself, and then the other hand gets stuck in both paws and head, and then it gets killed. There's nothing in there of pain. Most of the Buddha's metaphors are not pain metaphors. They're entrapment metaphors, being fettered, losing your freedom, losing your agency. That's why the Buddha doesn't describe enlightenment in terms of relief, but he would famously say, just like wherever you dip into the ocean, it has one taste, the taste of salt. No matter where you dip into my teaching, it has one taste, the taste of freedom. Okay. So what he seems to be saying is that all of your life is threatened with the possibility of losing your freedom. So let's go from all is suffering to a provocation. Realize that all of your life is threatened with a loss of freedom, a loss of agency. And there's a word for this kind of loss that's often translated as suffering, which is dukkha. Dukkha, again, does not mean pain. What does dukkha mean? Well, the etymology is, imagine you have a wheel and it's off-center on its axis. So the axle is not properly going through the center of the wheel, and as the wheel is turning, it's destroying itself. So there's a self-destructiveness. Or you have, your arm is out of joint, it's disjointed, like when, um, in, when Shakespeare has, Hamlet says, the time is out of joint. Right? It's out of joint, and as you're moving your arm, it's destroying itself. So it, it means like an empty gap that's sort of dirty, so that as things are moving within it, they're destroying themselves. So the idea of, a, of something that's engaged in a process of self-destruction 
which of course is one of the powerful ways you can lose your agency is through self-destructive processes, is what's going on here. So realize that all of your life is threatened, very really threatened, existentially threatened, by a capacity for self-destructive behavior. Self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. So now you see what he's doing is so situated very firmly within the axial tradition. So what, what does he mean here? How can we try and um, understand this a little bit better? So this is work uh, based uh, uh, on some stuff I've published with Leo Ferraro. And then I'll talk about some additional and important new work uh, by Mark Lewis. I want to try and trace uh, a, a kind of pattern in your cognitive processing that can very often occur. And, and the, the core of the argument I want to make is the very processes that make you adaptively intelligent, and we've been talking about this from the beginning, also make you vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Okay, so let's say you encounter an event and you interpret the event as bad. Okay. Now, one of the adaptive machines you have is your brain immediately is trying to predict and anticipate other events like that. The point of right, you encountering something potentially even painful or distressing is not just to, uh, it's to make you sensitive in anticipating what's going to happen in the future. Okay, so your brain now tries to assess the probability of another event like this happening. Now, we'll, go into, we'll get into this in more detail later, although we've talked a bit about it already with ideas about salience, right, is I can't take in all of the information available to me. If I was to try and calculate the actual probability of an event, I would have to track all the variables in my environment. That's astronomically vast. Even a supercomputer cannot possibly do this. Right? So the, thing, the thing is, when we do probability problems in school, we are given all the variables by stipulation. But the real world doesn't work that way. The real world has an indefinitely large set of variables interacting in an indefinitely large number of ways. So what do we do? Well, we use what are called heuristics. We use shortcuts that try and help us cut through and zero in on the relevant data, the relevant information. As we've said before, the zeroing in on relevant information is crucial. So one of the things we do is we use the representativeness heuristic. Right. You judge how probable an event is by how prototypical it is, how salient it is, how much it stands out in your mind. Right? And that will often interact with another heuristic, the availability heuristic. This is you judge how probable an event is by how easy you can remember a similar event occurring or how easily you can imagine another event occurring. So these are, these are actually very adaptive for you. Now the problem is you're in a bad state because you've just had something bad happen to you. 
Now that, that triggers a thing called encoding specificity. When you're sad, it's very difficult to, for you to remember events in which you're happy. It's very easy for you to remember events in which you're sad. Be that's because your memory doesn't just store the facts. It stores all that perspectival participatory knowing. It also stores the state you're in. This leads to very sort of paradoxical things. If you lose your keys when you're drunk, one of the things you should do, if you want to get your keys back, is get drunk again, because chances are it will improve your memory. If you're studying for a test and you have a headache and you take some aspirin, when you're actually doing the test, take the aspirin, because it will improve your performance. I mean, so there, there's classic experiments on this. In one experiment, right, you have a bunch of people learning a set of words, right, in the same room, group A and group B, and then in the second part of the experiment, group A does it in the same room, group B does it in a different room. That's the only difference in them. Group A will remember a significant greater number of words than group B, just because they're in the same room. Okay? Now, this is very adaptive. You may say, that's crazy. No, it's not. Because your brain is trying to always fit you to the environment. So it doesn't just store information. It stores how you were fitted to the environment or the context. It's very adaptive. So now what's happening here? Well, you, you're in a bad state, so it's easy for you to remember bad things. That means it's easy for you to remember bad things. And that means you judge the probability of bad things happening to be increasing. This bad thing just happened to you, so it's very salient. That makes you judge that it's much more probable it's going to happen. And these are reinforcing each other. Now, all of this is interacting with what's called the confirmation bias. We'll go over a lot more of this later when we talk about problem solving. What this is, is an adaptive strategy you use where you tend to only look for information that supports your current belief. Because very often trying to find disconfirmation is, takes too long and it's very difficult and complex. So we tend to look for what confirms. So now the confirmation bias now as I'm going through my memory and my imagination, I will tend to look for things that confirm my forming judgment that this event is highly probable. Now all of this machinery can go awry. Right? All of these heuristics will mislead you. It's because of this heuristic that people make mistakes when they take loved ones to the airport and things like that. Right? Because we can imagine planes falling from the sky and when it does, it's very representative for us. People describe it as a tragedy. It's in the news. And so we judge airplane crashes to be highly probable, even though they're very low in probability. But then we turn and get into an auto, our automobile, which is the North American death machine, without paying any attention to it. So we misjudge probabilities because of these heuristics. Now, we can't do without them. It's like when we talked about hyperbolic discounting. You can't do without them. They're adaptive. You need them. Let's continue this. So these are all reinforcing each other. The confirmation bias. So now what do you do? You judge the probability to be great. Okay. 
Now notice how most of this is happening automatically in a self-organizing fashion. That's again, because imagine if I had to do everything fully consciously. Okay, I'm going to pick up the cup. Now I need to start tensing my upper bicep. I need to start moving my... If I had to move everything, I couldn't pick up the cup. I need my cognition to be inherently self-organizing. We've seen that throughout the way in which your processes need to be happening simultaneously, bottom up and top down. Like when you're doing reading and you're reading both the letters and the words. Your cognition needs to be self-organizing. It needs to be largely automatic. These are adaptively indispensable for you. Okay, so you judge the probability is great. Well, what effect does that judgment have on you? It's not emotionally neutral. Okay, that makes you anxious. When your brain starts to conclude that the probability of negative events is high, you get anxiety. What does anxiety do to you? Well, you lose cognitive flexibility. Your, your framing on things becomes very narrow, very rigid, very limited. What does that do? Well, that reduces your ability to solve problems. The ability to solve problems goes down. Okay, what does that do for you? Okay, as that goes down, you start to make lots of mistakes. And fail. What does that do? Well, of course, that increases your anxiety, and that reinforces, right, that bad events are happening to you. What does all that do? Well, all of this starts to gather in your mind as, I'm doomed. You get fatalistic. Well, if you're living in a fatalistic world, you're going to start interpreting more and more events, even neutral events, as bad. And the whole thing starts to feed on itself. The very things that make you so intelligently adaptive, the fact that your cognition zeroes in on relevant information, makes it salient, the fact that it's so complex, capable of complexifying itself and organizing itself, the fact that it is trying to fit you to the environment and process information in a way that's doable within the real world, all these things that make you so adaptive simultaneously make you vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. That's what it means to say all of your life is threatened. Realize that all of your life is threatened by dukkha. It's not that everything you're doing is painful or distressing. That is ridiculous. That is a meaningless claim. It's that every process you're engaging, every time you're exercising your intelligent agency, you're making yourself vulnerable to self-deceptive, self-destructive processing. We called this in the thing we published, parasitic processing. Yo, 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 we're back. Yep. All right, so now we're going to jump into parasitic processing. Now let's make sure we understand what we have learned thus far. All right, cool, we've got the timestamp for that. Yeah, man, that was a lot of notes, oh my goodness. Oh, boy, uh, yes. Yeah, so we get into the Four Noble Truths, which for Vakey 
suggests maybe better titled as like the four ennobling oh. provocations. I yeah, like I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So we're we're talking more about um, that 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 uh, way that we can get lost mm-hmm. by leaning too far to one or another way of looking at the world and looking at things and and uh, such as the idea that what makes you a Buddhist or a Christian a member of this or that tradition is if you believe according to its precepts, exactly according to its, you know, its way of looking at things, it's scripture, it's this and that. Um, it's not that, and it's not being too, too overly objective mm-hmm. and just generalizing about it either. So transforming the fundamental machinery of our agent arena relationship of our identification of self in relation with the world he used this word reenact opposed to believe that I liked, um, you know, it, it that, that the four noble truths point is to reenact the way yeah, the, the <clears throat> enlightened, the Buddhist enlightenment yeah, process. Cause it's, yeah, it's not like, it's not stuck in the perspective and where it's like, well, or even you have to orientation, have yeah, this yeah. belief perspective. It's like, no, if you, you, if you reenact, if you enact this again, you will know the way. That's that's how I perceive Christianity. And that's the why Christ, of Christ also said, "I am the way, the truth, yeah, and the life." Yeah, that's how I produce, yes. uh, perceive that line. This is the way. Yeah, and it's not like me. Just follow me, and you know, it's like, well, if you do what I do, no, follow what you, I'm doing. That you will is, also be the way too. Yeah, um, <laughs> everyone's trying to kill me for, even though it's like it's loving towards yeah. all. Well, they don't, they don't you try to kill you. This is inherently right? beautiful and useful and good, and yeah. life affirming. This yeah. is the way. Yeah. Which come you know, with me, we will live this way. It's not a belief; it's a very active doing. It's in, yeah. Do this to let's do this together. It's a reenacting, <laughs> if you will, or because <laughs> we're trying to evolve and we're trying to evoke change. Mm-hmm. So we're, yeah, we're trying to understand what's what's going on in this enlightenment process and what is enlightenment alleviating. So we look at the standard and the reformulated uh, definitions. Yeah, uh, definition of, of uh, the idea that all is suffering in Buddhism. Provocation one, a really good breakdown there. Yeah, yeah. So the problem with the word suffering and the reason why it's wrong is because it's comparative and it can't, it can't yes. always be suffering. Yeah, comparative only works sense. in relevance to something yeah, else. To yeah. something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, all is short. All is tall. All is good. All is bad. Yeah. It's got to be in relevance to something else. So, yeah, all is, that's obviously what's not meant by it. And it's also not saying that all is pain. You know, yeah. but but we're thinking that because it is. A, but we use the word suffering for, in in our minds, we relate it to pain because if you are in a high state of pain, mm-hmm. you can lose agency. Yeah, and so, so what's really saying is that all is threatened. Yes, by the potential that we can undergo the loss of agency, we can become fettered. We can and lost to our self deception mm-hmm. and our relationship to reality. So realize yeah. that all of life can be threatened by our loss of agency, yeah. our loss of sense of freedom. And and so dukkha then, or dukkha, um, is a beautiful word for how a wheel can be off kilter. It's off center. It's, yeah. it's turning, as it's turning, it's destroying itself because it's out of joint. Yeah, I, I wrote down uh, lopsided, off-balance self-destruction. Yes, basically, yeah. And that's know, basically it's... saying how all of, all of our lives can be threatened by our capacity to bullshit ourselves. And that is because we have these inbuilt cognitive processes that are super highly adaptive, they allow us to to be able to delineate 
mm-hmm. in our salience landscape, what is relevant and what isn't, but it does it really fast. And a lot of it's auto- automatic too, automatic processing. Like when we go to pick something up, we don't want to have to think about every single yeah. movement of our arm and how we're going to do the thing. It's just built in. So it becomes like yeah. an intrinsically learned process. Yeah. yeah. Cause we can't interpret everything. Yeah. So you the get... brain's just trying to predict threat, you know? And so it, it can, it's, yeah, easily vulnerable to bullshit and self-destruction and self or self-deception and self-destructive behaviors. Yeah, and so, and, but we're just trying to make ourselves sensitive towards what to what we can expect coming down the pike, you know. So it's it's a good thing to have, but we can't take everything in this way. There's too many variables in reality at any one time to to be able to compute all of them. And so we are trying to create salience landscapes based off of using this, these these heuristics, these inbuilt cognitive processes to zero in on what's going to be most relevant to be able to keep apparent in our salience landscapes of awareness of reality. And that, that availability heuristic that we use, uh, how reliable does something seem? How easily can we remember it? And since we remember painful experiences and scary things and sad things more readily than things that make us happy because this is to, to keep us alive, then we encode this idea within ourselves that bad things are more probable. And he gave that example of the A and B group. Yeah, that so, was really good. Yeah, that um, so it has to do with you know, say the familiarity, fami- familiarity. There we go. Of you know, like this experiment is the A group. So you take an A B group, you have them learn words in separate rooms they're learning at the same rate then you take the b group and put them in with the a group and the a group does better because it's more familiar with its environment yeah. and the conditions yeah. it was under to learn the words than Clever. the b group you know like he mentioned which you, changed room so it wasn't as familiar an environment yeah yeah it's, so your brain remembers everything and all mm-hmm. kinds of different relevant what, what it mm-hmm. thinks is relevant and it's la- salience landscape and the other side of that when is our mitigation of the overload of information and we do that with the what is it the representativeness heuristic which is yeah, what like is a relevance heuristic and then the yeah, availability heuristic. which which is a you use the represent representativeness heuristic yes. for what is most probable by how prototypical and salient it is. That's right, yeah. And then the other one is the accessibility here. uh, That's right, accessibility Yeah, availability or accessibility, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, And yeah, and this interacts with her confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So both, and actually both of them go back and forth. So if you're familiar with the place and something bad happened within that place, Mm -hmm. well, you're going to, one half of confirmation bias is going to be there and then you apply your heuristics to it and if it fulfills those heuristics then it goes and then you have a confirmation and confirmation bias isn't necessarily bad in all senses but right. it saves time no yeah it, it, it's it's useful in some cases um, um it's a generalizing feature but if in you, our brains but, but it's it's harder confirmation bias is it's an adaptive strategy our yeah. brain utilizes looking for info that supports um previous evidence that we've seen before but it's harder for us to do this to do disconfirmation when we're in this mind state because it threatens our belief system our sense of reality as well and also it it 
continuously like every you know every time you go through the loop it locks you further and further and further yeah. into the box and everything gets tighter yeah airplane and, crashes are horrific things to imagine yeah but they don't happen but as they often don't happen as, as much but when you're dropping off your loved one at the airport mm-hmm. you're more likely to make a mistake while mm-hmm. driving even on the way to the airport mm-hmm. than you than they are in that plane when you drop them off yeah, we're in that mind state. We don't think about it that way because it's just super salient to us. And this is how we can bullshit ourselves. Some things can be more salient, yeah, more Part- bright. Particularly if it's a bad in event. In our consciousness. You know, yeah. because that has the pain, that has yeah. the anxiety tied to yeah. it. And then you, when you're anxious, you stop thinking, you lose your cognitive yes. flexibility. So we misjudge because of these probability heuristics that we utilize. Yeah. And, and we need this. And we, we do this automatically, though. It yeah, is we cognitive... need this cycle to be automatic or else, like he said with the cup, you, would, you wouldn't be able to, like, if yeah, your body you wasn't drive automatic. if you're terrified of accidents with every single car that you're go- going by or being yeah. near, you know. I mean, you're going to be. Using too much of your processing power, just worrying about what could happen, and focusing on the actual road. So I got a little, uh, let's call it a poem, because it, it, it's not a sentence, but this is how I summed it up. Mistakes were made, and I failed. Anxiety happens, spiraling. Doom. Doom. If, if, uh, that what, what, what is it? Fatal, fatalism. Yes. Leading more spiraling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, so the cognition needs to be self-organizing. Thus, we are also prone to mm-hmm. bullshit and self-deceiving mm-hmm. ourselves sometimes and in, in, in giving too much credence to some of that confirmation mm-hmm. bias that can occur in the brain. So we have to be constantly checking and in this in and out process to calibrate mm-hmm. our awareness and get really practiced at that calibration is the process of, of wisdom. So anxiety. So if we go into an anxious state of mind because we're in confirmation bias and we're worried about, say, the loved one that's about to get on the plane, we lose our cognitive flexibility. We thus lose our problem-solving capacity. At, and then we start making mistakes, potentially. And then our bias and keeps getting the informed by the failures opposed yes. to Failure increases anxiety. We lose further cognitive flexibility. Mm-hmm. We become more fatalistic. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. Well, and, and that's, reinforcement loop. that's the DACA. So that's DACA. That's the wheel off kilter. Yeah. So all of, a, all of your life is threatened by DACA. Yes. Is basically self deception that, that we are vulnerable to self deception, our adaptive machinery. So mm-hmm. we must learn to hone it and become aware of our confirmation mm-hmm. biases and how they can serve us in generalizing, like when we're on the road driving. Yeah. And you know, it's it's important to be aware of For the instance, natural cycles that your brain's going to do already. So then, if you have to, you can say like, you we're can favor what we want to believe in. Yeah, and so like, so we, it's good to remember that. So we're willing to challenge and try and disconfirm even our uh, own beliefs because we're trying to get closer. Well, what we'll is good for one and all, too. not so, to personally be right. Like, if you're trying to or seem right, you know, if you're trying to like get somebody to, you know, like uh, become familiar with dogs again, but say maybe when they were a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like attacked by a dog or something happened with a dog in a place. Yeah, what, yeah. what you would do, you wouldn't immediately bring the dog out. You'd probably bring them to a place that was similar to like what had happened. So this is breaking mm-hmm. down, nice, yeah. this is breaking down the encoded specific, spec- spec- man, I'm having a hard time speaking. Specificity? Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> My yeah, dyslexia is showing. Hard for me just now, man. Um, so and not just the facts Exposure of what happened. Therapy you're talking about. Yeah, so yeah. you would expose them to it, and then eventually, very gradually, and incrementally, then you would encourage yeah. their. Hu- maybe show them a video. Yeah, of well, a dog in that environment. 
well, after I, they've gotten used to that I would say if it happened at like a dog park or, or something like that, go. you bring them to a dog park and not have any dogs Without around. Without any dogs around at the time. And yeah. then you introduce one really friendly dog. Yeah. You just show a video well, of a and, really and, friendly and dog and then say, would you like to well, maybe meet before this dog? Well, before you even <laughs> get to that, you would then have them use their heuristics the representative and the accessibility. Oh, oh there really? are no dogs here. There, you know, like yes, so. Yes, 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 yes. And then, that's what's happening in the brain. And then now you're creating a positive confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I can do that. And you do this with people who like are a little bit agoraphobic too. You don't immediately send them out to the club. You know, you start them with like a quiet cafe. Yeah, yeah. And you know, so you re-expose, and then you go through the loop again. And now yeah. they're a little closer to the dogs, and then you have a special, you know, specific, nice-tempered whatever dog mm. for them to interact with, and it just keeps cycling. So, since we know our brain does this, we can retrofit solutions to it, and we can do it in the moment when we're getting lumpy, if you will, when mm. we're yeah, when the right. wheel is getting a little, yeah, you know, yeah. floppy, and you know, be aware and be like, okay, I'm going into there, I'm. I'm I'm going into this loop. I got to stop. I got to reverse, and I got to reset the confirmation bias because you're always going to have some type of confirmation bias. The goal is to get past it, but like you know, you got to realize you know it's like, well, I I should be afraid of that dog. Dogs will bite you, man. They just got big teeth. It's like okay, no, they are kind of cute. Not all dogs bite people, and some dogs bite people, but they can't do nothing because they ain't got no teeth. You know, <laughs> and, yeah, you know, yeah. so you got to. Yeah rebreak yourself and it's it's reframe it's yeah. it's nice going through this too because this isn't just like an intellectual endeavor that we're doing here mm-hmm. this is useful stuff that can be applied and i'm oh, not man. this whole sequence was like it's particularly heavy yeah and stuff, i'm not an intellectual you know, either so I, it's, it's going through this whole thing as is, i hear it like i'm like okay i want to live up to this but i can yeah. tell like god i got a lot of the self-deception within my own person yeah. within my own life my attachments my own addictions and and I do see that that is decreasing my capacity for higher levels of agency and freedom in this world. Yeah. That's a powerful yeah. insight. Yeah. It's, you know, it's leveling, but it's also like, and, you know, it might, might, might kind of knock you, knock the wind out of you, but it's also building you up at the same and, time. And this is extremely useful. So it's like just when I say I'm not an intellectual, I do like intellectual endeavors, but I'm more of like a practical practicalist there you go is it practically applicable? because if it's not i have a really hard time maybe finding value and why i should store it into my long-term yeah and that's and in the last episode he said you know a lot of this stuff like these ancient wisdom schools they're they're like mired in and how, how do you say it? Mesmerizing mysticism. Almost, sure. Yeah, you know? yeah, we'll and show it's you like pretty we need to get past and, you know, pretty the mesmerizing the mysticism and, yeah. of the different cultural motifs mm-hmm. and stylings and all of that that are utilized to teach from the, the different times and places that these beautiful mm-hmm. ancient traditions come from. To find that non-dualistic glue that holds them all t- together. Yeah. That deep insight yeah. that we see congruent throughout all of well, these that, various that glue, traditions. I think we... We're on the edge of this as as the far as the species go, throughout. but I think it's a re- a revolution of self and our relationship yes. with the with the world and the universe. Yeah, what an exciting time to and be alive! Like we're agency, really seeing the gems know? of wisdom of all of these ancient mm-hmm. traditions that are time tested over millennia, that mm-hmm. that are ingenious and deeply profound and life affirming, that are coming into congruence with one another, and they're building together now. Mm-hmm. This is all of humanity. All of our global cultures have reached this point in our technological advancement. Now we have the opportunity to continue the upgrade of our humane, humane advancement of our inner 
what, what is how do you say it just of our humanity you know our capacity to be humane to be stewards well, i think that word to hum- be courageous yeah i think that word mankind. humane and humanity is is going to shift in meaning um and i would like to be part of the people that shifted into the good meaning of what is what we think of as humane and stewardship yeah. and without guilt tripping ourselves and yeah. gaslighting people to get our yeah. way of thinking across and blaming each other for all of this you know i went through a phase when i was younger and coming into a lot of realization about corruption within our own government and i was really upset with people prior to the war in iraq because right after 9-11 literally like 85 percent of the people in this oh, country yeah supported going after Iraq, even though I had nothing to do with 9-11. But Bush and the media did such a good job of constantly transposing Iraq and then the war on terror and then talking about Iraq and weapons mass destruction and then we're engaged in this war on terror because these people attacked us and they kept trading Mm -hmm. Saddam and uh, Saddam Hussein Mm -hmm. and bin Laden back and forth at the same time too. Sometimes George Bush Jr. would actually slip and be like, and then... Saddam bombed our, I mean, Bin Laden bombed our towers. And I'm like, man, how much of this is accidental? And how much of this is opportunistic and on purpose? Because we know that. And Albert wasn't it was Saudis that were actually the ones flying war. the planes into the buildings? Yeah, so stars, after CBS and NBC that. and Fox News and CNN all together, like in congregation and alignment, actually sold us this idea of our country being attacked and gave us PTSD well, the day that the towers fell, showing those planes hidden. Every at every commercial break, man, they had that shit so dressed up too because it was like suspenseful music, right. you know, the planes flying. And you got the sound effects, <laughs> planes coming, explosions. That And with that suspenseful music and then the graphics of like a target on the United States, mm-hmm. you know, target reticule on a map of the United States and like flashing alarm lights and friggin just like excess everything terror 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 in every single oh, speech and, all the time to sell a multi-billion dollar surveillance state yeah. well, that actually dude if you're in a school it's a violation of, of many of our when i was in school intrinsic liberties that we we founded in this country they so on our you know back back before we had like private computers and all that stuff they would have like one screen up in the corner and that would play like the morning school news and all that stuff but then so we saw the Twin Towers hit because my first period teacher was like, "Now nah, we're keeping this song because you got to you got to see it with your own eyes. You know, it is traumatic, but, you know, like you got to know what's going on. And then Hours we got nothing but the like, way that they showed that we way. got like Al Jazeera and, and and other propaganda in school on the TV. Every single back in the day, it, like BBC used to be it, pretty good. Yeah, but it still it drummed up a lot of like fear. Um, right oh, after sure. it and and yeah. they were showing Politics, this they were they showing this to children and they Ooh. were doing the propaganda at school much. not just on the tv at home because they were showing us stuff from tv and don't get me well. wrong like the, i'm the not knocking al jazeera or nothing but like doing what they did in this country is despicable and yeah. horrifying and it shouldn't be done by our own country to other countries either no but that's but, often been the case but you should as our country's been used by corporate interests wars of resource acquisition right and and this is a democrat and republican problem and both bernie sanders and trump called this out the military industrial complex in our country dwight eisenhower called this out and it's happened and and it's crazy how we went from that 85 percent public support of the war in iraq and like 75 plus percent approval of george bush and congress at that time to a complete flip well you can where you can only be the lumpy wheel so long and, and bush approval dropped to lowest like super low levels mm-hmm. like historic low levels um 
like 15 and 30% approval oh, yeah. ratings. Yeah. And well, you can support only support for the war just dropped dramatically, but it took like seven years or so. You can only be for that to happen. And, and so that's the power of how bullshit can be utilized. Yeah. But and something can be made super salient and you, we can yeah. be easily manipulated and, and you, you can, know, the and powers you, that be, and you can't be the lumpy wheel forever. Eventually it's either going to break or you're going to get tired of it and you're going to change the wheel. And that's what happened. People, we got numb to it. It was just all the time. And then we started getting mad and then we changed and we were like, screw you. Like you're, you're, well, they did the same thing with the, with the coof as well. You know, the death counter on every, you know, like CNN and MSNBC. And it was this, how many people are dying updated every, you know, live update and all that stuff. It was the same stuff, man. And it's just like, yeah, bad things happen, but I have, I have very little human love for people who will use fear and terror to push whatever it is. Not not the killer saying, bees are coming again. Yeah, you know, <laughs> death hornets. Uh, oh, there's yeah, a new but, kind but, of yeah. What was that like? The you know the cold d- virus. Uh, uh, or, yeah. Well, what is it? No opportunity. Uh, uh, what's the saying about you know? Don't let any opportunity or any tragedy get unused or something like that you know or every tragedy is an opportunity yeah if it or, leads it leads man and every tragedy is an opportunity well and, and you know what I, instead of compla- media conglomerates are concerned instead of complaining and i'm not saying you're complaining but in general for me instead of complaining about the people doing this i think it's more important to arm and armor people against this with this kind of meaning Amen. making so yeah, when you see it, it you can defend against it and yeah. then you can cut through the bullshit <laughs> quite literally yeah we can actually build up our firewalls for cut. the bullshit yeah and, and we can improve our sense-making capacities so that we know what how to make sense of what is so and how easily we can fool yeah, ourselves yeah. and how we do this and well, it's natural it's okay we got to stop being so angry at ourselves and one another mm-hmm. and yeah well and get out of get out of our heads awesome. you know we're so egocentric we're so afraid of being wrong like who cares if we're just trying to figure out what's good and truthful yeah. one and all we'll be fine disconfirming our own hypotheses all day mm-hmm. you know challenge your own beliefs question everything we're trying to find out what is true and if you are happening to be supporting something that is true and good for one at all you know knowing the counter arguments to it is just going to help you defend it better so what, whatever sure. you believe yeah you know, look well, at the counter arguments and and try and look at independent perspectives a good way to do can. this is uh you know tr- you yourself try to debunk your own beliefs as hard as you can and then once you can't do it anymore go find somebody else to do it for you so then have a conversation with yeah, them then find the best books and, on that subject yeah, challenge and, then, and everything you can if if you really want to find if you really want to get engaged in this game on that level um but generally yeah we we can improve our firewalls and our collective sense making mm-hmm. capacity and our collective wisdom making potential to arm ourselves against the the downsides the dangers of these but we cognitive need, processes we need that cognitive we herd immunity it's, we need enough people to get these skills together and and then so we we need to re-realize yeah. our wisdom traditions yeah. and upgrade them and like you were saying earlier coffee shops yeah. getting together in congregation again and wisdom fellowship and spiritual fellowship regardless of tradition I mean, okay. the non-dual way of being the recognition that there is only one thing everything is interrelated and interconnected as the yin yang symbol shows us everything so, is interrelating opposites then uh, you, you can find that through all these different major wisdom traditions we can celebrate these ideals together yeah so I, I i just said cognitive herd immunity i don't know if anybody else coined that term but if they haven't i'm coining it and i think it's important because what herd immunity <laughs> I is i like it i like it herd immunity isn't like immunity. you have so many people that have been infected with something it's 
the infection goes to either one or less people. So you have one person that gets it and they pass it on to one or less people. That's herd immunity. Um, yes. Ideally, it'd be down like, you know, 0.2 people. So it's very rare to happen. So instead of an infection, it's bullshit and lies and you know like so it's the bullshit bullshit only gets the bullshit only gets spread from one 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 or less people and that's cognitive herd immunity where you have at least enough people that are aware and finding the bullshit that it's not able to spread around efficiently enough through the population to cause a crisis a sickness of you know a a mass contagion, if you will, of the mind in the cognitive mm-hmm. processes. Mm-hmm. And I don't really like using infectious language and stuff, but I think it is apt for how lack of meaning can leave us susceptible to mass psychosis events. Absolutely. And, and, and more than that, just or less than that, like, you know, just bad fads, if you will. <laughs> you know? Not to be confused with Gad Sad. He's a pretty cool dude, but bad fads. He's a fads. cool dude. I like Gad Sad. Um, but yeah, so uh, cognitive herd immunity. Cognitive herd immunity, I baby. Want, now I'm going to find somebody else who was talking about this like, you know, 10 years ago or something. And I'm like, damn. <laughs> they're, they're always going in, into into the future and then back in time to steal my ideas. <laughs> All right, do uh, you want to take a well, quick break? Yeah, every great idea has been capitulated and recapitulated with a little mm-hmm. bit more definition yeah. to it's it it's been you know? exapted every yeah. great idea has been exapted into new great ideas and great ideas need multiple perspectives on them sure. so you know having multiple ways of saying something that's deep and fundamental to life i mean that's like the object of great poetry mm-hmm. and great music and yep. great art well that's the plausibility the first part of plausibility is the converge uh, the divergent converging sources and then the next one is is it applicable to a lot of things and that's his power yes yes is it multi-apt i really like that word yeah i do too that's cool that's a really cool term so um yeah i'd like to take a break i gotta pee break let's do it guys go ahead and uh pop yourself some corn get yourself a drink and we're gonna be back in probably five or ten so stay tuned we're gonna finish off the last uh just like 20 25 minutes of this episode and See you guys uh, momentarily. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, 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 hey. All right. Cognitive herd immunity. Yeah, I, I like that one. I'm going to have to think on that concept a little bit more. Maybe make it catch on, you know. How we may develop. We could create a flashpoint presentation. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'll, I'll call it uh, cognitive herd immunity in a post-COVID world. There you go. Yeah, That's there great, you go. Dude. Zynga. Yeah. In a post-COVID world. But, you know, le- less about, you know, the the infection, if you will, and more about... In a post-panic what, mode, right? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, what we went through collectively as a species and are still going through in some places more than others. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, but th- things to think about, and you know, things that are going to piss people off. You know, you know, I like pissing people <laughs> off. Indeed, it's true. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. I'm not necessarily an a hole, but you know, if I have to be, I will be. Well, yeah. we got to be willing to have the complex and difficult yeah. conversations. Yeah, and do it with a smile on our face. <laughs> well, we can. We can invite people into a new orientation of figuring things out together approach. You know, and that's how we if we approach with that kind of orientation. Like in our minds, we're side by side with the person trying to figure it out. We'll find ourselves framing our mm-hmm. arguments that way or our statements that way. It becomes more of a inter-dialogue, mm-hmm. you know, than a competition. Yeah. Where it's like you're opposing each other, debating, trying to prove 
Well, that uh, that interdialogue right. is is one of the only games that we play that everybody wins if you do it right, and everybody loses if you don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we can get so attached to our belief systems that we can do crimes against one another that we would never think of doing individually. But that group thing gets you, man. Mob mentality. And our belief systems can indeed ideologically possess us to the point that we will close ourselves off to actually good information. Mm-hmm. Even that if, you know, even if it is the most blatantly our, obvious information yeah. too, you know, you've, you've, you've closed down so much that even something that should be salient and true is, is nope, that's not salient. You know, I can't see it through. It's hard for people. I know because we all have so much going on in our lives. We're all busier than we've ever been trying to make ends meet that, uh, yeah, you know, the greedy that run amok are further enabled to do so and to further divide and conquer. Well, and they're enabled to do so by our laziness and our red- profit from yeah, and our red- reticence to suffer the weight that it takes to. I don't want to say well, they, they manipulate the work, us to, but yeah. to do your own work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we're up, we are indeed up against multi-billion-dollar psychological oh and they had a lot of money for research on how to manipulate you very well yes um but that research is out there and you can look at it yourself and we can also arm ourselves yeah with yeah with wisdom and we can use it on each other in a in a non-malicious way to say like you know we try to advertise actual podcast so i tell my friends when we're talking about stuff like this i'm like check it out you know and like you can use sales techniques to make things super salient, but make it true <laughs> instead of bullshit. Uh, Zig Ziglar yeah. style, man, yeah. where where it's like a win-win situation yeah. for everybody. Yeah, that's the, that's the best way, man. We've got to find ways to make this subject matter attractive for us again as humans because we've been mm-hmm. turned away from it for so long because it's become so big. The challenges that face us have become so great that they are at once very much stunting us. You know, they're stopping us in our tracks. They're putting us into fear mentality. And we're just trying to keep up our having needs mm-hmm. of survival. And like I said, making ends meet. Mm-hmm. We don't even feel like we have the time to deal with these larger world issues that our species has now experienced, such as a breakdown of meaning and understanding and making sense together. We used to be able to, we had traditions that while imperfect, they did allow us to actually recognize transcendent ideals that we could live by together that were, that superseded our interpersonal affairs even. And we delighted in it. Even the king and the leaders must be bound by these universal laws mm-hmm. of goodness and loving thy, thy neighbor. And once these inter- ideas were introduced, such as by Christianity, the idea that the lower classes matter as much as the nobles and that even the murderer, even the rapist, even the, or the, uh, what, it, how is it that, okay, so Christianity looks out for the dispossessed, it looks out for the young and the innocent, and it looks out for those elder elders whose mates have died and need people to care for them. The people that have been dispossessed that need caring for deserve as much love as the nobles, and even a murderer 
deserves love is a crazy well, concept. Was not Jesus also hung on the cross next to a despicable person? So we got the idea of innocent yeah. until proven guilty because we can get in our heads that someone was a murderer when they weren't sometimes. Yeah. And so thank God for genetic testing and things like that nowadays. But this still happens. People on death row die every year that were that are actually innocent. Yeah. So the trying to put measures in place to protect ourselves from our cognitive biases and our confirmation biases. Well, how many, you know, like burning the witches how and many, all of that stuff. Well, like, how many stories do we have of, you know, I don't know, somebody in a family gets accidentally killed by somebody else. And then there becomes this feud of then the other family kills somebody of the other family or burns down their house. And then, you know, so then the, the you know, it's family back and forth. Well, uh, the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, it started that whole thing. If you're not mm-hmm. familiar with the Hatfields and McCoys, it was two West Virginia families that had a blood feud. Yeah, so yeah. think like, you know, the Montagues and the Capulets from Shakespeare's um, uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? But it was all started over a pig. Somebody stealing somebody's pig and then get messed up. And then one of the family members, you know, fought, maybe killed another one. And then another, back, and and back, and and back and forth 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 and back and forth. Yeah. So everybody deserves a chance to be... To, to make up for their sins and to be a good person. Jesus is one to give anybody that chance. Well, I think and he also said that we should treat everybody as equals, that we should yeah. treat everybody with love, even our own yeah. enemies. Yeah, instead of getting emotionally riled up to the point where you can no longer make any sense or meaning and then just responding mm. Purely emotionally, mm-hmm. like the family feuds and stuff, you know, that yeah. that is to be avoided. And yeah, because our confirmation bias is we, yeah. we will paint demons where there aren't some and sometimes. And we will also, there's there, looking out for ourselves, we will let the lower classes be taken advantage of by the well, ultra wealthy. I mean, I got a cell phone. We're just trying to survive. You, you got a, you, Do you have a anybody? You got an electric car? Yeah. That co- but the sleeping giant at any time, we the people can come to wake yeah. and create new systems that make the existing failing ones obsolete. Not to say that um, that America's system is is awful. It's actually great in many respects. It's a beautiful ideal. It's the first I think time it's human the best, beings ever best came one up we've ever come up with. Allowed us to try yeah. and devise a system of self governance rather than being ruled by nobles and elites and bloodlines. Uh, and tyrants and despots. Um, now, while imperfect, we, we do deserve a 2.0 version of this. Like these ideals of freedom of speech and a free, fair marketplace for all to be able to transact in and trade in uh, with protections and the right kinds of regulations that are reasonable. Well, that helps still encourage business, but protect us from our self-destructive tendencies and, well, and, there's and a, all of that. There's a deep freedom. It's hard. It's a hard game to figure out, but we can figure it out together. We have to, right? It, go ahead there. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, but as far as this country and what makes it great is we respect the most primary deep freedom to protect oneself, and that's included your mind, but physically protect yourself it's the prime rule of nature to protect yourself and if your government becomes corrupt so the second amendment isn't just about like say like owning weaponry so you can't limit it to only muskets and all this stuff it's about the fundamental protection of self and i think that the Mm -hmm. second amendment Mm -hmm. not just arms 
shooty, 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 but also access to information that you can use to protect yourself. So the first yeah, and the second amendment great and small. are just yep. a continuation, yeah, are continuations really, of the same Really, yeah, like Dave Chappelle said, like thing. the second amendment is there just in case the first doesn't work. But the first is the most fundamental. But like the, We've got to be able to have the ability to speak completely openly with one yeah. another so that we can dispel yeah. the foolish belief systems that are out there and argue against them openly yeah. in public in the town square so yeah. everyone can see why they're wrong and less people are going to become deceived by sure. them. Well, because then know. you can point out the you know you can point out the bullshit, and enough people see it and say okay. Yeah. Instead of letting it fester, and then you get rabbit holes and little secret groups of people that do their whatever whatever yeah. it may be that they want to do. Conversation is the last bulwark we have yeah. before war begins. Yeah. And if we can't figure it out through conversation, then it turns violence, and then then the innocent get involved, and and well, the one thing no good for is we're we're allowed to protect ourselves, not just physically, but mentally well for now in this country mm-hmm. that is amazing because it you know there were, we're point, there were points and times where you weren't allowed to defend yourself like you know if uh, another you know i don't know a group of people came and like pillaged your village and stuff like that you didn't have the means to protect yourself or anything else that was somebody else that was your lords that were supposed to protect you by mm-hmm. gaining their armies and stuff like that and then before that it was you know always somebody else protecting you or you know, like yeah, to hope your lord was a good guy. Well, even you know the one gripe I have is in some cities, and I will not name them. Um, but in some cities in the United States, like if somebody tries to like mug you or hurt you or kill you, and you beat the crap out of them, you get in trouble. You get in more trouble than the person that tried to do it to you. Mm-hmm. That is ridiculous. That is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Where you're supposed to leave your house if it's broken into. Yeah, it's like no. Rather than defend. Well, it. the same thing goes with the mind as well. Mm-hmm. We're expected to no, shut up and just say the words. It's like, no, we're not. We are allowed to defend ourselves with words. If we're being attacked with words, then we're going to defend with words and logic. Mm-hmm. That's why I think there's... You know, well, it's more than just defend. It's like engage. You're supposed yes, to try yes, and engage yeah, in sense-making with yeah. that person that you're arguing But that's against. where it's like also the defense. Like, you know, we're also guaranteed a defense. Like, if we're accused of a crime, we're guaranteed a defense. And in, in mm-hmm. the meantime, until we're actually found to be guilty, we are presumed innocent Mm -hmm. so we can Mm -hmm. defend from an innocent perspective opposed to a your guilty perspective right 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 and and, you know we've kind of flipped that on the head now when it comes to discussing ideas it's like no you're guilty of wrong think instead of like okay make your argument make your point and let's do it in good faith now it's like no like you just said this thing that i don't like so now all of your points now you're guilty of whatever ist i can put on you or ob or any of this other stuff and yeah it's that like, othering's got to stop man and it's not just an american phenomenon it's, it's hitting the whole globe i'm um, not gonna get all conspiracy theory but you can read official stuff and this is the plan oh, it's age old it's yeah. age old that yeah. divide and conquer is highly sure. profitable and we also yeah. know that corporations have indeed been enthroned and they've been in a challenge against this system of self-governance and others around the world for the last well, couple we're hundred the, years we're since the, the founding of this country. We're the last bulwark against uh, complete totalitarian, yeah. uh, totalitarian Aristocracy over. is always going to be a challenge. Yeah. Oligarchy is always going to be a challenge because it has humans the can time, be greedy because you know. they can get stuck in that having mode. Yeah, sure. And they become and the most manipul- increasingly perverse, it seems, because they're not meeting their being mode needs. They're yeah, not finding yeah, inner yeah. peace, so... Once they get all the money that they need, now they start Just playing this power control, game, and then yeah. they get into some really dark Epstein didn't kill himself kinds of activity. Hashtag Epstein didn't kill himself. Yeah. Man. So this, this is, these are hard things for us to face as a species, but we all know deep down what's going on. We also yeah. all sense the 
social breakdown that's happening yep. among regardless of like what within beliefs our, yeah, you have nations. you can sense what's break it's breaking you can down feel it happening and we all we, do, we need we to be the glue it. we need to yeah. bring this thing back together we need to get involved in figuring things out together again and so we have to find uh ways to popularize wisdom collective sense making yeah. capacities so that we can Mm-hmm. even be interested in orienting ourselves to do the work together but it, this mm-hmm. is, these are hard things to sell and yeah because it's not like you know take this pill and in seven days you'll lose seven pounds of fat it's not one of those kinds of things no, it's more no, like it's also the most life-affirming yes, project that we yeah. can be involved in you yeah. know if you're looking for meaning if you're looking for belonging this is the game this is the point in time that we're at as a species yeah we are the adults now and we get to decide which direction spaceship earth goes from here yeah do you want to go lord of the flies or do you want to do something more like this star is a Trek, crazy you know? fulcrum point in <laughs> yeah. a species evolution this is a really exciting time to be alive it's almost it's not boring <laughs> it seems it's like, like it's very likely that when species get to this point of technological capacity that they reach a fulcrum point mm-hmm. a pivotal stage like a phase shift as daniel schmachtenberger mm-hmm. describes it wherein you're like almost in this cocoon stage where you have the potential to metamorph into higher levels of relation and just blast off and be able to fly around your environment and change from, you know, because butterflies become super pollinators after being super decimators of their environments. They eat up almost every leaf in their local area before they turn, go into mm-hmm. the cocoon and then they turn into a butterfly and they come, become super pollinators. Now, if you looked at the human race right now, you could think that we're completely destroying everything and we could think of human beings as like a cancer to this planet. But then we can also remember that we're actually outgrowths of this planet. We're extensions of this planet. And we're, the only species, self-reflective. we're the only species that has a shot of stopping a major big yes, asteroid from smacking too, us. You right? know, we like, really are. The, yeah, save the humans, man. Because yeah. we're the only thing that's capable of stopping that next asteroid. If you really care about life on Earth, recognize that we are extensions of Earth. We are not separate from her. And we have this great capacity that we get to wield and we just have to learn how to maturely and responsibly wield it yeah. together. And, let's and not, if we don't, then that, you know, it yeah, was be, a good run, bud. It's yeah, a good it was run. Fun. It's a good run, but we might as well at least try. It's certainly deeply fulfilling and engaging to be a part of and to recognize that this is where we're at. It's, uh, it's quite exciting and it's, it's beautiful. I mean, just to see that we've come so far as to be these animals that write poetry and sing <laughs> and, then and try care, and make each other laugh and care so much for cute things yet yeah. eat cute things as well strange yeah. creatures but the one so say happy holidays and merry christmas to strangers yeah. when we're walking by and it's like other animals don't do this stuff man yeah. like we've come a long way we still have a lot to deal with but we've come a long but way. we're also prone to parasitic processing yes we, are. <laughs> yes we are indeed yeah which all the last stuff that we talked about or he was talking about with the cycling, uh, that was the the negative aspect of that is the parasitic processing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what did I say outside? Like make it a symbiote and not necessarily a blood sucking parasite. That's, yes. You know, use yes. the tool. Don't be used by the tool. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I like that. Symbiote. All right, guys. We're going to jump back in now to episode 13 of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. It's not that everything you're doing is painful or distressing. That is ridiculous. That is a meaningless claim. It's that every process you're engaging, every time you're exercising your intelligent agency, you're making yourself vulnerable 
self-deceptive, self-destructive processing. We called this in the thing we published parasitic processing. It's not just about bad events. This is just one example. We get into all kinds of these spirals. We'll put up on, this, on the video uh, a recent uh, schema for what depression looks like that was re re released by some MIT researchers. Very complex like this. We call this parasitic processing because it's like a parasite in that it takes up life within you and it right, takes life away from you. It causes you to lose your agency. It causes you to suffer. And here's what's important. This capacity for your cognitive brain to be self-organizing, heuristic using, complexifying to create complex systems and functions with emergent abilities has a downside to it. Look, this is what you know when you're in one of these spirals. You'll know it. Oh no, here I go. Oh no. Knowing it, what does it do for you? What does your belief do? It's like knowing, you, knowing that I should go outside the square. Think outside the box. Doesn't do anything. Why? This is a complex, self-organizing, adaptive system. If you try and intervene here, the rest of the system reorganizes itself around your attempted intervention. It can adapt and preserve itself as you try to destroy it. Why? Because it's making, sure, it's making use of the very machinery by which you adapt and make use of the things that are trying to destroy you. It's, that's how it works. No matter where I am, this is a perennial threat. No matter what I am doing, this is always liable to happen. Now what's interesting, uh, as I said, my, my, my colleague and good friend Mark Lewis, um, we're talking about comparing this to other work that he, he's recently been doing. So some of you may know Mark Lewis. I highly recommend you take a look at his work. Mark has been deeply influential in my own thinking, um, ideas about dynamical processing, self-organizing systems development. He is one of the foremost important neuroscientists about addiction and how addiction works in the world. I strongly recommend reading his book, Memoirs of an Addicted Brain. Um, so Mark uh, was himself, I'm not disclosing anything confidential because it's right in the book, Mark was himself an addict in his youth. And then he overcame his addiction, then he went into the neuroscience to try and figure out why, what is addiction, how does it work. Now, that's important because addiction, right, is addiction is primarily the loss of agency. Right? It's not, I mean, addiction is distressing and painful, but when we're talking about some being, somebody being addicted, the way we finally diagnose them is by how dysfunctional they become how much they lose their agency, right? So you are a video game addict if you are playing video games to the point where you cannot pursue the goals you want to pursue in your life. You cannot establish and cultivate the relations you want to establish in your life. You cannot cultivate the kind of character or identity you aspire to. If the video gaming is robbing you of those agentic processes, then of course, that is what we mean by addiction. Addiction is a loss of agency. 
Now, when you take a look at Mark's work, Mark challenges, Mark Lewis, he challenges, right? I just saw him give a talk, I've been having lunch with him, but, but I also saw him have just a really good talk at the Society for Psychology and Philosophy, or Philosophy and Psychology, we'll get the order right, um, just this past year. And it, 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 he was not the only person uh, making this point, but he articulated it with his own particular uh, explanation, which is his. So the point that many of people are making is the standard model of addiction is incorrect, fundamentally wrong. What's the standard model? The standard model is we have a biophysical chemical dependency, and when the chemical is removed, we get an overwhelming compulsion to have to seek out the chemical. And if we don't get the chemical, uh, then we suffer uh, similar to as if we were starving from a lack of food. And, if we, and so that's what addiction is. And the problem with this is um, it, it sounds very commonsensical and the media likes it. It has the one unfortunate feature of being almost completely false. Because first of all, you can get addicted to processes that have no biochemical basis, like gambling, for example. Secondly, if the if the overwhelming compulsion model was correct, you have a great deal of difficulty explaining some very, very pertinent facts. Most people spontaneously give up their addiction in their 30s. We, of course, get focused on the people who remain addicted, and therefore we come to believe that addiction is an overwhelming compulsion. But if you actually track people, many people spontaneously stop being addicted. Here's a great historical example. You have soldiers in Vietnam during the Vietnam War getting addicted to opioids in Vietnam. The opioid crisis! Not that it isn't a crisis, but we tend to think that certain chemicals are intrinsically addictive. So they get addicted to heroin. When they return to the United States, the vast majority of them spontaneously stop using the drug. But, but why? Chemical, not in the body. What's going on? Isn't there a, a biochemical lack and therefore a, a huge compulsion? Well, think about it. Think about it in terms of existential learning. See, when they were in Vietnam, they had a particular identity. They're a soldier, and they're in a particular arena, war. They're in a particular existential mode. When they return to the United States, they become a citizen, right, in a peaceful country. The relationship between the agent and the arena is what is fundamentally being altered in addiction. So Mark proposes a model that he calls reciprocal narrowing. So here's your agent, and here's the arena. And what happens is the drug use is, 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 is associated with a particular agent-arena relationship. And what happens is and we talked about this before. Remember, this is always co-identification. 
We're always assuming an identity and assigning identity in a co-defining, interdependent manner. What happens is you start to lose a little bit of your cognitive flexibility, perhaps due to something like this. As you lose your cognitive flexibility, the, the number of options in the world starts to decline. Right? As the number of options start to decline, you lose the variability for your agency. As you get a tighter, narrower, less flexible cognitive agency, the number of options in the world goes. And what happens is these two things reciprocally narrow to where you have no options as to who you could be or how the world can be. And that's addiction. It is, an, it is a learned, not propositionally learned, perspectively participatory learning of a loss of agency. I pointed out to Mark that if this is the case, there must be an opposite. If there's a spiral down, there must be a spiral up. And in personal communication, just recently, he said, yes, yes, totally. And you know what that spiraling up would be. What would be the agent arena relationship in which the agency and the world are expanding? That's anagoge. That's the move towards enlightenment. What I want you to understand is dukkha is these two things because they're interpenetrating. This loss of agency, because this, this is your agency. As you're simultaneously doing parasitic processing within, you're doing reciprocal narrowing without. Those are totally reinforcing each other. That's dukkha. And no matter where you turn, this is always threatening. You can't get free of it. You can't run away from it. You can't deny it. Remember the Buddha tried self-denial. This is like trying to hop over your shadow. You can't do it because it is endemic. All of this is endemic. This is the agent arena relationship. You can't do away with this. This is indispensable to be you being a person. This is self-organizing, relevance realizing, complexifying, processing. You can't get away from that because that is what makes you adaptive. So what do you do? That's what the Buddha meant when you realize that all of your life is threatened by dukkha. He didn't mean believe that all of life is suffering. So, what we need is, how do we address this? Well, once you realize it as a provocation, once, I should, like, the point is, you should feel threatened. You should feel threatened. Because if I can make you feel threatened by what I've just done here, how close and intimate this threat is to you, then you're starting to enact the process of moving towards enlightenment, rather than just asserting some propositions that are largely inert. So, 
what's the standard way of presenting the second truth? Suffering is caused by desire. And that gets you into all kinds of problems. Because then, well, don't, but don't I desire enlightenment? But then you should not desire to do, and then you can just get into all these weird loops, and, right? A better way of thinking about it is realize that dukkha can be understood. Realize that dukkha is caused by the way in which you can become attached, which doesn't mean, right, that you just really like something. It means this sense of a narrowing of yourself and the world so that agency and options are lost. The way the addict is attached to their drug, which is not a compulsive desire, although they will experience it that way, it is better understood as a parasitic processing that has led to a reciprocal narrowing so that no alternatives are available to you. The third, the traditional presentation is the cessation of suffering is attainable. But realize, a better way of putting that is realize that you can recover your agency. Because this narrowing down can also, you can use the shame machinery to anagogically ascend out of the cave towards the sun of enlightenment. Realize that this machinery this complex machinery, this dynamical system, can be exacted in a way that reduces your capacity for self-deception. Why? How? How do I address this? By a psychotechnology. The Buddha offered a psychotechnology of practices. You know how you deal with a complex dynamical system that is operating against you? By cultivating a counteractive dynamical system that is operating for you. You cultivate a dynamical system that doesn't intervene just here or here, one at a time, like your efforts. I'll try this. Oh, that doesn't work. I'll try this. Because every time I intervene, it just reconfigures, and I'm doing the same, same damn thing again. Here I am in this fourth relationship, doing the same damn thing again. And I know I'm doing it, and yet when I try and not do it, I find myself doing it. That will not work. That's why people end up in therapy. But what if I could create a dynamical system that could interact, intervene here, 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 simultaneously and in a coordinated fashion. What have I created a counteractive dynamical system? And that it operate and that didn't operate just at the level of my beliefs, but operated at the level of my states of consciousness and my traits of character. That's what the Buddha offered. He offered the eightfold path. The eightfold path is a counteractive dynamical system that counteracts parasitic processing and does reciprocal opening beyond the ego self and beyond the everyday world. 
That's why it's represented by an eight-spoked wheel. It's supposed to be a self-organizing system that rolls itself, in which each part is interdependent on all the other parts. You might have heard it. The Eightfold Path is to cultivate right understanding, right thinking. There's various translations of this, right? Sometimes right aspiration, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And then right mindfulness and right concentration. We already talked about this. Saying there's right mindfulness and right concentration means there's incorrect. Two, one thing, this right is not moral righteousness. This is right like right-handedness. It means getting an optimal grip. Because that's what my right hand is an expert in doing. It means getting an optimal grip. Notice this is about your cognition. This, right, is about your character. And this is about your consciousness. And it deals with ethical aspects, existential aspects, sapiential aspects. It is the attempt to give you a counteractive dynamical system that can deal with parasitic processing and that can help you reverse the reciprocal narrowing until you get anagogic awakening that takes you beyond the prison of the ego and the everyday world. So we, we see what's happening here. What I'm trying to show you is this higher state of consciousness, this awakening is set into a context of helping you do important transformations. It helps you to remember the being mode to get out of modal confusion. It helps you counteract parasitical processing and reciprocal narrowing. It helps thereby to open you up to self-transcendence in a reliable and powerful way. This is what the Buddha was offering people. And I've tried to explain it to you in a way such that both you should feel threatened by what he is trying to provoke in you and you should be encouraged. Both of these are enactment statements. You should be able to enact the threat and enact the courage, encouragement, enacting the courage that you can respond to the parasitic processing and the reciprocal narrowing in your own life, to the modal confusion in your own life. Part of what we need to understand is how we can properly integrate this into what we have been learning about wisdom and meaning in the Mediterranean cultural historical context and how all of that can be integrated within a current scientific worldview. Thank you very much for your time and attention.
good that was, that was real good if you couldn't tell from the meowing i didn't get the chance to actually watch this one beforehand so this is oh, all cool. new to me right up front and it's it was, it's a hard it's episode, nice. man. Yeah. yeah oh yeah no, there for a bit i'm like oh, i hope i hope you caught that <laughs> yeah yeah right. this is this is when i realized i was like oh my gosh okay i'm gonna have to restart from the beginning when uh, i first discovered this series a few years back and yeah man but you know upon hearing it i, I knew this this is this thing's going to spread and it's going to go places and so I'm the, excited to help encourage that process. The first thing I have written is the monster is adaptive. This parasitic processing monster, even though you Man. try to intervene at any given point, it will work itself around you. Yes, the ego yeah. will, will recapitulate itself yeah. as the Buddhist practitioner knows. Yes. Yes. It, it takes up life within us and so we're losing processing power to this parasitic mm-hmm. processing, basically. That's the sense of suffering that Dukkha is point. This, mm-hmm. The word term Dukkha is pointing to. So we have this self-organizing, heuristic, uh, heuristic-using brain. Uh, it's great at complexifying, but it has a downside. This, this perennial threat of the per- per- parasitic of our processing. And so Mark Lewis, who wrote on uh, dynamical processing in memoirs of an addicted brain uh, that sounds like a really good book uh, tells us how addiction is a loss of agency and we can become addicted to things that are biochemical as well as just like screens you know we're all addicted to our screens and, and our smartphones and nowadays and, you know like um, yeah, behavioral mannerisms i would say habits would habits. be, would be you, an, yeah. you know like you Not get addicted to habits. biting your nails mm-hmm. there you go um, yeah. yeah and what's our belief systems and he gave the example of you know the soldiers coming back or being addicted to yeah, yeah. soldiers in war heroin and when they came back they lost it and mm-hmm. this brought uh, he came here he enlightened me to the term of reciprocal narrowing mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. there's a rat study that relates this yeah. idea really well too where these rats were basically given water that was laced with cocaine and they'd get addicted to it mm-hmm. and then they would take it away from them and they would put half the group into just the same kind of cage but now the water has no cocaine and then they'd put these other rats into like a rat heaven cage it's like king's dominion or disney world for rats it's got all kinds of rides and toys and games and treats the water has no cocaine but the environment is much better yeah and so the rats that are reintroduced into the same environment Mm -hmm. without all the accoutrements just the same as before, but minus cocaine, are friggin' miserable. Yeah. But the ones yeah. in Rat Heaven are yeah. friggin' fine. They're just doing fine. And so, yeah, so we I know th- it's deeper than a chemical dependency. And we do have that with some drugs that there are severe chemical withdrawals when you yeah, get actually, really addicted, alcohol, like heroin and alcohol, alcohol is the main is, one that you can even die from. Yeah, it'll kill withdrawals. you if you're too far into it. But, but very much of it, I mean, even with opiates, it's so much of about that agent arena yeah. relationship. So the identity yeah. that the soldier has when he's in the war mm-hmm. arena, you know, that identity uh, turns into the identity of a citizen in a peaceful con- country he can give up because he's in a much more comfortable environment now. It's a lot easier for him to give up that thing that he was using to help him deal with the loss of meaning, the senselessness of everything around him. Sure. 
you know yeah and so yeah agent arena is a co-defining interdependent relationship we have at all times with our sense of reality and within this arena we have so when we're reciprocally narrowing Mm -hmm. we our loss of so the agent and the cognitive flexibility creates less options yes within our arena that then creates less agency further then creates less cognitive flexibility yeah and so his summation was the addiction is learned and the so and then well okay if that's the spiral down what's the spiral up and that's the anagage is the spiraling up the spiraling out so instead of you're opening your cognitive flexibility and you're gaining more options recognize recognition agency yes you know gains agency So, yeah, we recognize duck is always at play. There's always potential existential threats. This is endemic to reality. So we learn, again, not too tight, not too, too loose, loose yeah. in association yeah. to reality. How, so, and how intimate this challenge that Buddha offers feels or that Plato would offer to people or that Verveke is offering to us now is like uh, is, it's indicative of our being in a cultivation process now of enlightenment, of realization. It's we're recognizing that the wheel is off kilter now and realizing that Dukkha can be understood allows us to see how we can become psychologically attached Mm -hmm. to our beliefs and ideas and objects and addictions, habits, how we can narrow that sense of options. Like you said, how we can be constrained by that parasitic Mm -hmm. processing, that reciprocal narrowing. And like he said, you should feel threatened because that feeling starts your movement towards enlightenment. Yes, like you should yes. be, feel threatened yes. of, from Dukkha. Be like, this is a threat. Yes. I need to do but something about this. you can also this. see that there's an encouragement here. Mm-hmm. There's an instilling of courage and opportunity to enact courage. I love that he says, realize you can recover your agency. Yeah. That sounds very religious. Mm-hmm. Kind of a message, doesn't it? Yeah, and you know? and so... Sounds when, like something Christ would say. When, when he said... You real- can't ascend. Yeah, when you said realize that dukkha is is um, caused by the ways you can become attached, that whole releasing yourself of your attachment instead mm-hmm. of being a superficial superficial thing like, oh, you know, give up your family and your pleasures and all this stuff. It's like no, like learn what your attachments are because yeah. that's what's putting you in this lopsided wheel, self destructive. Yes. Um, and, 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 or not, yes. not even what your attachments are, but what you can become attached to. Yes. And that we can transcend mm-hmm. this, this psychological tendency yeah, you through can... psychotechnology, psychotechnologies mm-hmm. such as the practices of that help us develop wisdom, meditation, contemplation, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah. And these psychotechnologies are that Buddha has come up with. So this eightfold path is a dynamical system. Yes, it's a counteractive dynamical system. Yeah, that intervenes that, in all parts of yes. your uh, parasitic processing yes. all at once. So That's, This is why Buddha gave yeah. us the Eightfold Path, so yeah. that we had a way to, because there is reciprocal narrowing thing that can happen mm-hmm. in us through the parasitic processing, mm-hmm. downside of our cognitive capacities, we can also have a reciprocal opening, an interdependent system of understanding and realization mm-hmm. that can approach this these challenges from all angles at once so we need to get right understanding and not like righteously 
intended is this word right well right as in right op- hand getting the correct optimal grip i think i brought this up in our early uh one of our early episodes yeah. but uh, right understanding cognitive flexibility but about the right word thinking, the, aspiration. The, the word right real quick before we get into the rest of them mm-hmm. i want to mm-hmm. make sure this is well understood as best as it can there's a history of the right hand being the dexterous hand that comes to grasp with everything and we call this like so when you get your eyes checked You'll see do on your prescription, and that's de- that's dex no, od o- ocular dexter or oculus dexter, so the right eye, and then the other hand is the sinister hand. So we're literally referring to what's right, what can do things, and what's sinister, and you know, so right and left do have very deep meaning, and in this sense, it's right, like literally the right hand that comes to grasp that, you know, so you need the right hand, you know, the right hand of understanding in reasoning the right hand of understanding and thinking of speech of action mm-hmm. like a proper grasping not the left hand which is the floofy yeah if you're right handed this is how yeah. that how this would be expressed yeah but yeah. you know the, it's the history and that's why like, because most people are right handed yeah. we tend to use yeah. right with right yeah the, and the also with the way means. the brain works the le- left side of the brain which controls the right side of the body tends to deal with the knowns and coming to grasp with the knowns. Yeah. The left but what side is the optimal brain, hand for you is the point. Yeah. You know, it's basically about getting an optimal grip on reality. Yes, what is the precisely. best way to That's approach why this the word thing. right is there, not yeah, like not what the is right or wrong. Is right or wrong, but, but what just what is, is most gonna best be most grasped optimal. by yeah. what, by, you know, because what is yeah, most. It's not ethical. Well, yeah. That this, this term of, of right that we're using, but there is an ethical, existential, sapiential aspect to this enlightenment process so we have right understanding so so right understanding is not meant as righteous but right thinking and aspiration that's getting you a little bit closer to getting into that sense of of virtue and And then right speech mm -hmm. right action right livelihood right living right mindfulness Mm -hmm. and right concentration so how do we concentrate be mindful have a livelihood action Mm -hmm. speech thinking understanding that all move us towards anagoga Mm -hmm. This understanding grip that's that's what it means by right you know it's like the you know so i guess in the eightfold path if you read through it there won't necessarily say pres- prescriptive but maybe prescriptive like you know sure. you yeah. should do this it, well these are practices these are things to cultivate yeah these are the psychotechnologies the buddha you. has come up in order to help yeah reverse the reciprocal narrative yeah. and get the anagogic awakening going mm-hmm. yeah so yeah, hi- this is why higher states of consciousness are so helpful for us. They help us awaken and transform, counteract the narrowing, mm-hmm. open to self-transcendence, to the capacity to continue, continually reframe and reframe and widen our perspective. Well, when said like that, it gives one more um, incentive to go ahead and look at it and see, opposed to just like, well, do you want to be enlightened? Yeah, you yeah, do this for yeah, enlightenment. It's, it's like, not no, just about it's widening like, the perspective either. It's, it's about... D- creating a more reliable salience landscape yeah. with that widening. And this is well. a better a better description of what enlightening is mm-hmm. opposed mm-hmm. to just this, oh, I want to get enlightened. I want to get woke, man. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, right. it's like, yeah, well, you know, I want to continue to awaken and come to better grasps with myself yeah. and with the universe that I'm in. Yeah, B- Buddha's way is like an invitation, mm-hmm. basically. It's an invitation to engage with that inner and outer meeting crisis recognize a reciprocal relation with ourselves in the world and it's in the name too like as far as inviting it's a path 
What do you mm-hmm. do with the path? Yeah, it's you a way. walk down it. It's a way. Yeah, yeah. it's the yeah. middle way. That's yeah. why it's not too tight. It's not too loose. No. Very cleverly stated, though. I mean, to, to understand that with that, uh, to understand it the way Braveki describes now just adds so much to to it, and it's no wonder that we can so easily misinterpret what Buddha or Christ or any other great wisdom teacher was trying to tell us. These are very deeply complex subjects, and our confirmation bias is is constantly veering us away sometimes from this fuller understanding of, of reality and how we can be in relationship with it. Yeah, and it can blind us to you know, like quick changes and immediate changes and things too because you could be right for a period of time, but then things change. And yes. if you're not willing to yes. continuously change with it, then the confirmation bias, bias, instead of being something that's accurate and helpful with the way the things are, can now become destructive. Yes, and, and that's that, why Buddha told us, don't believe anything just yeah. because the authorities say it is true. The great teachers say it is true. Your parents say it is true. Mm-hmm. The religious say it's true. It, because it's popular and widely believed. Or Don't even believe if anything it's expected of you. To, until you, know, you have looked yeah. it in, into it for, your one, for yourself and found it to be true and good for one and all. Yeah. And so that requires our own careful research and investigation yeah. into ourselves and into the wider world. Well, man, this next episode should be pretty good if, it, if it's continuing on with this. Yeah. Yeah. It, it gets more and more powerful as it goes. It's... It's remarkable. Um, I'm going to have to get another. How Verbeke's brought so much wisdom together. He really is standing on the shoulders and interacting with giants and uh, some some beautiful, inspiring people out there working along with him. Well, hopefully, I, I hoped at some point in time, maybe, you know, definitely not like, you know, fame-wise, but intellectually and my understanding grow as big as the giants so i don't have to stand on their shoulders anymore cause... well we can interact with them guys yeah. like you can join and i need to yeah. actually um i'm not but like even a, just a, like personally a, a myself big discord user but i want to use discord more so that i can engage with the people in yeah. the john for community like ultimately i'd like to have an understanding and a reasoning of all this stuff in a way that puts me instead of having to stand on the shoulders of giants to see the way I can be the giant myself and see the way for myself. Oh, sure. Yeah, well, we and, want to... You know, cool, well, we're always going to be standing on the shoulders of giants just because we yeah. inherited language. We inherited so we these psychotechnologies. We need to become the new you giants. Know? I mean, so we're, we're standing we, with, with Buddha and Aristotle and Jesus yeah, and so many yeah. people that and artists and, and wise sages that have helped us get to where we are today. And... It's just a term for saying that we have a, a well, lot to be thankful for that was built before us sure. that we've now inherited that we get to and build further I, from. I, I think we have the ability to become those giants ourselves, and maybe that was sure, the purpose all, we all, all have along. That capacity to instead of just you know to like, do what Mario did, you can become yeah, Super Mario. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You yeah. can answer the ask the questions. Yes, you know, and definitely while you're smashing those question blocks make sure you smash the like and subscribe yeah. button on this video share it with friends and family out there who you think might may be interested as well this is uh it's very been very helpful for me personally yeah, yeah. and uh overcoming the cognitive biases and habitualness within my own self and it's this episode hit particularly hard because i can see how much work there is left to do but i'm thankful that i have you my brother to share this with and to do this work with and all of you guys out there, we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, was there anything else we wanted to say before we go? Um, no, not really. Just uh, stand strong. Don't uh, don't hide for too long. You know, get out there, do
do stuff, be afraid to ruffle some feathers and then be afraid to, or be, don't be afraid to have your own feathers ruffled. (laughs) Um, you know, we can't be, can't be quiet and complacent anymore. And I think the best place we can put our energies is into making meaning in the world opposed to just fighting against what we think is the worst. Yeah. You know, because we can't do better unless what we, we resist persists, man. Yeah. What we resist persists. It just grows stronger yeah. the more we resist it. Yeah, brother. Oh, yeah. That pin that you're holding there oh, that yeah. was given to us by a photographer. We, speaking of going out and do, doing stuff and interacting with people, we yeah, so just had a show with our band American Dharma up at RK Pub in Hagerstown, Maryland uh, for New Year's Eve. And we were with. Uh, uh, light upon darkness and and um uh, uh, help me demise not demise no no disfigure disfigure sorry we just you know we played with demise bands. too disfigure yeah my brain I'm, yeah but yeah it's, i'm trying to think of her name all right so this, this is a photographer is, we met out there if you're looking for a good, the, good this photographer wicked photography by tess yes tess facebook.com slash forward slash wicked photography oh no it's jess by jess jess sorry sorry, sorry jess well the, the scrolly j looks like a t uh, <laughs> or wicked photography by jess at gmail.com i'm not going to send the number out um but you can go to those um the pen's really nice it has one of those little butts on it where you can use your your cell phone she was very nice um and as far as photographers go even though she had to kind of like get close to you and do other things and be she's very unobtrusive so um if you're a band person yeah i'm looking forward to seeing those shots yeah if you're like in a band or whatever and you want somebody to come to shoot the show and do that you know perhaps she could be your your, uh person to shoot the show so uh, yeah 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 so one one weddings whatever you got man i'm sure she does a lot yeah yeah she i think she does mostly band work right now okay um but yeah, yeah 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 and i'm trying to see when our next show is it's in february Get, get up on our Facebook for American Dharma, and you'll be able to see it there under yeah. our events. Because I can't remember the day. I think uh, it's February third or February sixth. Yeah, I don't even know. They tell me the week the week before, and I show up. You know, <laughs> perfect drummer. I normally remember these dates. What it is? What it is? There it is. Yes. Okay. Is it February eleventh? I think that's the one. Hedgesville, Virginia, at Seven Moons. I believe that's it. I do believe Hedgesville, believe. Virginia, West Virginia. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I was like, oh no, there's uh, that's going to get confusing. So Hedgesville, West Virginia, Seven Moons. Yes. Yeah. It's hmm. going to be the next store building that she's got over there, um, at Unit Six. Yep. It's going to be us. It's February 11th, starting at 5 p.m. Cannon Hill, American Dharma, and Rattle Root. All awesome bands. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to seeing Rattle Root. We haven't gotten to jam with those guys yet. Sweet. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And that's a really cool little wellness shop that you guys should definitely check out in Hedgesville if you're looking for some cool knickknacks, meditative and spiritual uh, paraphernalia and all kinds of cool yeah. jewelry, necklaces, yeah, crystals, decorations for your stones, home, yeah. and incense, and, and everything. And uh, there's also room to uh, rent space next door if you want to put on your yoga with people or whatever it is yes yes so yeah thank you guys so much for tuning in and we love you all and we will see you next time wednesday 8 p.m join us